the system isn't based on you know creating morally good human beings or being morally good human beings it's based on creating workers and people who can uphold the economy is it that big of a deal they always ask me is it having a harmful effect is it, is it your portraying i'm like yes it is and maybe we as young people we're sort of brainwashed and manipulated to think that we actually don't have any power or agency to change it welcome to rethinking education Education's critical friend. I'd like to begin today's podcast with a brief story, if I may. About eight years ago, I wrote a secret teacher article in the Guardian newspaper with the headline, Let's Free Education from Political Control. It began with an exhausted, desperate report from the front line, the only constant is constant change. And it went on to suggest that perhaps we should uncouple education policy from the five-year electoral cycle so that we can stop with the endless churn of headline-grabbing policy initiatives, make a 10-year plan for education and set about implementing it in a calm and measured way. Needless to say, the government immediately implemented all of my suggestions and now everything is going great. To be fair, you might be listening to this in the far future when this vision has indeed become a reality. This is, after all, surely the end point of all of these podcasts. Anyway, I digress. The Secret Teacher column stopped running in 2018, but it's well worth a rummage through the archive if ever you find yourself with some time to kill on the internet. It's a vast catalogue of anonymous reportage written by practising teachers, usually blowing off steam about the lived reality of life at the chalk face. The Secret Teacher column would often precipitate lots of lively debate in the comments section, and my post was no different. There was one person in there who really caught my eye and we ended up making contact. That person turned out to be Tim Taylor, who featured in a previous episode of the podcast about the power of the imagination, which I highly recommend, by the way, if you haven't listened to it already. Anyway, Tim suggested that I should continue blogging and that I should also join Twitter because there was lots of interesting debate happening there too. And so I did, as did many other educators at the time, and indeed many since, including many of the listeners to this podcast. Indeed, I think it's fair to say that Twitter is the place where the vast majority of education debate happens online, although I'm happy to be corrected on this if you think differently. The problem with this is, well, there are many problems with this. Twitter is a multi-billion dollar machine that sells adverts by generating and propagating outrage. It's fair to say that there is often more heat than light in the education debate that happens there, which may be entertaining in the short term. The famous gif of Michael Jackson excitedly eating popcorn is often unleashed when some new beef emerges, but it really doesn't get us very far. People can be anonymous on Twitter, and this leads to all kinds of horrifying behaviours, from creepy unsolicited messages to trolling and ganging up on people to setting up so-called sock puppet accounts, which make it seem like other people support you when really it's just your hand in a fake account sock puppet saying, oh yes, I agree with what that person said. Or they write five-star reviews of their own books, or they write really horrible reviews about the books of their enemies, sometimes before the book has even been published. It's all very tragic. It won't come as a surprise to you to learn that Twitter is a website where all kinds of other things are shared and discussed as well, not just educational stuff, which makes it endlessly diverting and of great use when you want to indulge in a spot of the old procrastination. 
but it's also quite distracting because half of the time you're thinking about education and the rest of the time you're distracted by adverts and tweets about politics and celebrity gossip and the endless tedious culture wars. The character limit is a huge problem and leads to endless conflicts and unnecessary misunderstandings. You can't easily archive conversations or organise the discussion into topics. It's just an unending stream of stuff that flows through your timeline and everything just kind of disappears out the other end. The good, the bad and the ugly. Navigating the education debate on Twitter is basically impossible beyond using hashtags which are extremely limited and haphazard. Finally, I think it's fair to say that the education debate, as it plays out on Twitter, mainly consists of teachers talking to, or often at, other teachers. The voices of other people, especially the voices of parents and carers and of young people themselves, are often absent from these conversations, and when they do appear, they're often unfortunately dismissed as ignorant or ill-informed. What I'm basically trying to say is that I think Twitter is hopelessly inadequate as a place for hosting purposeful, respectful, inclusive education debate. As some of you may be aware, since I may have mentioned it once or twice on these podcasts, a really wonderful online community has emerged alongside this podcast, filled with really lovely people from all walks of life, including, but by no means limited to, working teachers. It's called the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, and it is a thing of great wonder and beauty. It's basically like a bat signal for summoning together the loveliest people imaginable. There are now hundreds of people in this community, and it's growing every day. And all of those problems with Twitter that I listed above, none of them apply here. There is far more light than heat. Indeed, to date, at least, there has been no heat at all on the Mighty Network. It's all light, baby. People aren't anonymous, so there's no anonymous trolling or trolling. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that word. It's all about education, so you don't get distracted by other stuff. There are no adverts. There's no character limit. You can easily navigate to different topics where discussions are archived. There really is something for all the family. The community includes people from all walks of life, mainstream and alternative educators, homeschoolers, parents and carers, psychologists, young people themselves. Everyone is welcome and everyone's views are respected. It's how the internet would be if you could just strip out all the awful bits. When I launched this community earlier this year, it kind of happened by accident and I thought, oh no, this might be a really time-consuming thing and I've already got like negative free time. So I posted a video which was kind of a holding position where I essentially said, thanks very much for joining, please be patient, let's grow this community and when we get to over about 300 people, let's ignite it and really get this thing going. Well, we now have well over 300 people in the community and so in the immortal words of Gary Larson, Let's get this baby off the ground. This week, I recorded a welcome video to initiate people to the site. I'll include a link to this in the show notes. If you haven't joined already, please do so. If you have joined already and you've been waiting for it to launch, well, we are now launching, so please dig out your login details and get involved. And whoever you are, please invite your friends, colleagues, and social media buddies. Let's create a space on the internet where everyone interested in rethinking education can come together and do it in a safe, respectful, non-anonymous, meaningful, inclusive, ad-free place. That seems to me to be a good idea. Okay, so to introduce today's guests. Earlier this year, through talking with people in the Mighty Network, we hosted a series of six campfire conversations 
In contrast to the podcast, which features long-form, pre-planned, recorded conversations with individuals, the Campfire Conversations were an attempt to bring more people into the conversation. These were shorter, more spontaneous, live-streamed affairs that usually included between 6 and 12 people at a time, always including at least one, if not many, young people alongside parents and carers and people from all walks of life. If you haven't seen any of the Campfire Conversations, they're all archived on YouTube, along with one or two juicy clips, and there are also audio versions in the podcast feed. The fact that those Campfire Conversations included the voices of young people was absolutely wonderful and kind of rare. The idea that we should include young people in discussions about education really shouldn't be a radical thing to suggest, should it? But we are where we are. Anyway, I met loads of amazing young people through these Campfire Conversations, and I'm delighted to say that today I'm speaking with two of them, Yumna Hussein and Lottie Cook from Pupil Power, an absolutely brilliant youth organisation dedicated to raising awareness of young people's perspectives on education, educating young people on how funding cuts have affected educational provision in recent years, and campaigning for changes to educational policy and practice that take account of the experiences, views and desires of young people. The very thought listeners whatever next. Yumna Hussein is a student currently in the lower sixth at sixth form. She's also the youth MP for Birmingham and the author of a wonderful, insightful book called Struggles of War, which she wrote when she was in year eight, like you do. Lottie Cook is currently a first year undergraduate at the University of Warwick. She's a young journalist and has published some brilliant articles and appeared on many a podcast setting out her vision for the future of education. And I'll link to one such article in the show notes. It was an absolute joy and privilege to be able to spend a few hours in the company of Lottie and Yumna. There is so much wisdom and insight packed into this conversation, mainly coming from those two, I should add, that I had to keep pausing it and re-listening to whole sections and I think it will take me a few more listens at least before I can take it all in properly. And although many of the issues we spoke about are deeply concerning and incredibly challenging, when you speak with young people like Lottie and Yumna, you really come away feeling like the future is in safe hands. So, without further ado, listeners, I will hand over to my recent conversation with Yumna Hussein and Lottie Cook. Hussein and Lottie Cook, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Hello, thank you for having oh, us. Hi, thank you for having us. <laughs> Absolute joy and pleasure. We speak at last. It's taken a little while to get there, <laughs> um, but we but we've made it. Amazing. So there are lots and lots of things that I would like to speak with you about, but I think it makes sense to start with pupil power because that's how we made contact. If you recall earlier this year. I think it started because I sort of reached out to Aaliyah probably to sort of just say that, you know, we really like to get some young people involved in these conversations around rethinking education. So could you start by just sort of explaining to listeners a little bit about what People Power is and how and why you got involved? And let's start with you, Yumna, and then we'll go to Lottie. Yeah, I think I just got involved in People Power because I thought it's really amazing how Aaliyah was able to bring 
together so many different young people with different backgrounds and different experiences of like their schooling experience and she was able to bring us together especially during the pandemic and I feel like we really utilized like the height of the pandemic as a way to you know get other young people to think about okay how how is our education system like formed what are sort of the things that need improving in our education system and I'd already previously done a lot of work and I was speaking to a lot of teachers and people about, you know, I don't think our education system is fit for purpose. And we kept getting the feedback that, you know, we as young people, we don't really have any power to do that. But I feel like people power connecting me with other young people who thought similarly to I did, but we we didn't know sort of a way to, to propel this into sort of action. A lot of the arguments that kept coming back was, oh, our education system was created years ago. It's going to take a lot of time to undo it. And whilst that's like important and it's correct, of course, it's going to take us a lot of time to undo sort of the damage that it's it's done. We, we, we can't really understand the damage that it's had right now, but those were sort of the things that kept coming back to us. It's too much time, it takes too much money. The government aren't going to listen to your concerns or your worries, especially as young people. And so that's why I sort of got involved in pupil power and all this work in transforming education to make it more sort of young people centric to, you know, decolonize our education system. All these sort of things came about of thinking, okay, young people's voices, we aren't really represented. We aren't really heard. We're, you know, learning is often sort of passive in me. Personally, I haven't sort of had any outward negative experiences in the schooling system, but I've also, I've always felt like, I think Mary was talking about this in, in, the, in the podcast episode before um but she was saying how you know teachers we, we, we don't like they don't have a reason as to why you know in classrooms when you know students are bored you don't have a reason to say okay we we don't know why you're te- we don't know why we're teaching you this young people always ask okay wh- what's this gonna you know how's it gonna benefit me and teachers don't really have a good reason and so all of that accumulated into me thinking okay what are, what is our education system meant to be and why is it not working for the majority of young people yeah, thank you. Wow, there's such a lot in there. I love how you sort of you focus on like, why is it the way that it is, right? So it's like not just sort of saying we need to change this, but trying to understand why it is that things are the way that they are. That's very important. And maybe we'll get into some of that. And you're saying that like young people that as a single young person, you didn't feel particularly powerful, or listened to or consulted about education. But with pupil power, there is like sort of power in numbers, if you like, and you're able to have a collective yeah. voice. Yeah, that's great. And I love how you're talking as well about, you know, something that's young person centric, something else that you in that podcast that you mentioned the last episode with Mary Helen Imodino Yang, she was talking about the need for a Copernican revolution in education, where we're going from it being like an earth centric view of the universe to a heliocentric, a sun centric solar system, at least the universe. And I think that that's absolutely something that is important. And it's something that so I think some people are a little bit cynical about that because they're like, oh, this is just, you're just arguing for child-centered education. We tried this in the 1970s with all this sort of hippie permissive stuff and it didn't yeah. work. There was anarchy and now we've just got to go back mm-hmm. to kids sitting in rows and being controlled from the front of the room. And so there is a Copernican revolution, but it's not like it hasn't been tried before. So there's something that's sort of, I think we there's need to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, exactly. There's something missing, but... So being young person centric, I think, is very important. And there's something, if I if I forget, remind me later that there's something about the difference between P mode and S mode learning that I think is really helpful to understand. But I'll explain what that means later on. 
So Lottie, how about you? What what was pupil power sort of mean to you and how did you fall into its orbit while we're using solar system metaphors? <laughs> um, I met Elia on another podcast, actually. We were both sitting on a panel talking about education, school. It was like a really wide range of topics. And she said what she was doing with pupil power. And I was like, I cannot let this go. I am joining this because this is absolutely amazing. And I'm not the only person who's thinking like this. This is great. So I shot her a message. And literally two weeks after, she was like, you know, I'm trying to build a bigger network. Let's, you know, jump on a call and see what we can do. And I jumped on a Zoom call with probably getting to about 100 other young people. And we just had a chat about kind of education, what our thoughts were about it and started on some initial kind of tasks where we did uh, the big student call up and so many other events, which was absolutely amazing. And I think for people who've never met before, and um, Yamna and I still haven't met in person, nor have we met Elia, are really coping well to kind of do so many amazing things. But yeah, I like Yamna, I thought I was the only person thinking this way. And it was really good to find out I wasn't alone in it. Because when you're constantly shouting that, school just isn't what it should be like uh people just tend to tune out after a while because again it's just me and there was that power in numbers of so many different young people I think that's about it yeah but I just hearing that I wasn't alone in it was really really good yeah absolutely and so can I ask you to cast your mind back to this call I'd love to see that I'm guessing it's not possible to see a recording of it but like a call of a hundred young people um, what were some of the sort of the key themes that were emerging? What are the things that all of these young people are concerned about, about the ways in which schooling works? I think for a lot of people, and myself included, it was a like a wake-up moment. It was a, oh, okay, we've just realised, because this is in the middle of the pandemic, we've just stopped and we've just realised that none of us are coping. Why is that? And then we look back. And I think a lot of people were just tired and very, very frustrated about a number of things. I was trying to think of anything that really, really stood out. But I think to a degree, it was the expectation to adapt to, you know, what everything going on with COVID and online learning in a school system, which is so monotonous and is taught in one way, like your whole life. You're never taught, you're never expected to adapt at all. And then suddenly there's this expectation thrown at us that we can adapt and we'll be absolutely fine. And we'll get twice as much work done because we were all being set more and we were, yeah, very, very frustrated. And we thought, well, if we've just woken up, I bet the rest of the country have just woken up as well. So we set out to do this really amazing call called the Big Student Call Up. And we had, I can't remember numbers, but it was huge. We had young people from all across the country, probably as further as south as I was living in Southampton, further north to like Edinburgh, Scotland. And we were all just discussing our thoughts around education and what we wanted to do to fix it. And we wrote up this huge document and that still underpins a lot of the work we do today. So we really do try and listen to other young people's voices to make sure we're representing them properly. And that's an example of us doing that. Right. Thank you. And so to just kind of just unpick the, the you, so you were talk, you used the word adapt there. You were saying that education, the diet of learning is monotonous. And you said that we're never expected to adapt when we're at school. And that, that but obviously after you leave school, you are expected to adapt. But what do you mean by adapt? Is this is this about sort of I don't want to put words into your mouth, but are you talking about the way in which education is done to you and that you don't have the freedom to sort of to move or to choose stuff? Is that what you're getting at there? Yeah, yeah, you've read my mind of that. We're all used to this very set formula that we have had to stick to. And for some people it works and for some people it doesn't, but 
there's no other option. So you have to just stay in the system of your nine to three, sit, do the lesson, have your break, have your lunch, go home. So when you're now put in a setting where you get work emailed to you every day for a lot of us, and that's the amount of contact I'm having with anyone, was very, very tricky to navigate. For a lot of people, it was brilliant because they needed that self-paced learning and it really, really helped them. And for someone like me, who absolutely, you know, thrived off of that system, I was just stuck. I did not know what to do. and I felt completely behind. Um, so that's one of the main things. And also just talking about this on one of the campfire sessions ages ago, um, school just doesn't prepare you for later life as it is. And I've now moved to university, which is like, it flips learning on its head. It's totally different from anything I've experienced before. And I remember one of my lecturers saying the other day, like, oh, you know, as you know, this is a very different way of thinking. You can't do it like this anymore. And I was just sat there feeling really frustrated, like, well, why can't, you know, we have had a school system where actually it's been a lot easier, this transition to move into university. And we've been thinking this way a lot earlier because the stuff I've done within two, three weeks of being here is been so much more about, you know, knowledge and understanding than just spitting out information. And that needs to have been done way, way, way earlier in my education um, because it is taking a lot to get to grips with. Yeah, okay, that's fascinating. So let's just pause here and like in the Rethinking Education podcast, I really like to get to know the guests as well as just to talk about these ideas. And it seems to me that you both are quite successful students. And some people might be thinking, what are you complaining about? Like, <laughs> like, you got to university, you know, the school system worked for you. And so I'd really like to hear about your own experience of education and, yeah, just how it's gone so far. Let's, let's go to you, Yumna, and then we'll come back to you, Lassie. Yeah, I would say, like, as a child, maybe in primary school, I didn't really question what I was sort of learning. I just thought of it as important. I always thought... No teachers know best, that sort of thing. When I went to secondary school in year seven, year eight, sort of growing up, I think I was always curious as a child. And I think the first sort of time that I felt that I had agency was, so I started co-authoring. So I was writing a book with my cousin um, and it's called Struggles of War. And we sort of self-published on Amazon. But I remember like, I would always be awake, like writing this book, like reading, researching, interviewing people. And it was about the war in Palestine and it's sort of the psychological impacts that it can have on a child. But I just remember like my mom coming up and she'll be like, Yumna, you're still awake, go to go back to sleep. And I'll just be like running downstairs, working on this story on my laptop. And, and it was so fascinating to me. And I felt like, okay, because I'd always been sort of a shy person. I mean, I had my group of friends. I had people that I was comfortable with, but I wouldn't say that I made an effort to step outside my comfort zone. Um, I don't think a lot of young people do at that age anyways, but I was 12 at the time and we sort of co-wrote this book and it was like a hundred pages. And I, I remember just feeling so accomplished. I was like, this is great. I mean, why don't, and I learned so much skills. I was um, at communication skills because me and my cousin, she wrote the side of the book from her, from another different perspective. She wrote about the war in Somalia, but from that point of view, from a young boy in that, in that context. And I wrote it about the war in Palestine from a young boy's context. We sort of merged the stories together. And I, I just thought it was beautiful how, you know, I learned communication skills. I learned so much, like you're writing a full thing, publishing it on Amazon, formatting it, doing the cover story, everything. Like 
the, the the cover of the book, the blurb, all of those things. And we worked on that at 12 while still doing school. I always say now, I don't think it was a great book by any means, but I feel like it was probably the start of my sort of journey of thinking about agency. And that's when I think that I sort of had that niggling sort of doubts about, okay, what is our education system really meant to be for? Why am I not sort of developing those skills in a classroom? And I felt like, to me, it was a massive accomplishment at that time. I just felt, wow, this is amazing. And I remember to this day, like most of my teachers still don't know. And, and they, they didn't know until like, I, like most of my teachers at the time, and they still don't know that I did that. And it wasn't sort of a big deal. But for me, it really was. So I, I just felt like there was one, they felt, it felt to me that there was a massive disconnect from the student and the teacher. And that relationship between a student and a teacher is so important. And it's not sort of cultivated in school. And it's, you have that one parent's evening and it's like, your child's amazing. And my, my dad was like telling me like a few weeks ago, he was like, you know, every parent's evening, like it's always about, oh, your child's amazing. And they, or, or they always bring out what's it, what's it called that, that is colored and, it, and it's got like all the metrics and that outcomes. And it's not sort of, what does your child do outside of school? How can we support them? Like all those sort of things, they, they don't really ask you those questions. And so it occurred to me that I was, when I was in year nine, I was like, okay, we need to have a more humane approach in our education system. But I, I didn't know how to step forward with that. I didn't know other young people who thought that way. And still to this day, when I speak to my friends and, and they always ask me, you mean, you always talk about this education system, you know, like, okay, like, is it, is it that big of a deal? They always ask me, is it, is it having a harm? Is it ha having a harmful effect? Is it, is it your portraying? I'm like, yes, it is. And maybe we as young people, we're sort of brainwashed and manipulated to think that we actually don't have any power or agency to change it. And when we're not shown an alternative, that becomes really demoralizing. And it's like, if there's no alternative to it, we just have to stick to school. But there is alternatives to attending a traditional school. And my school that I attended, my secondary school, was a traditional academic school. It was, you know, there was there was nothing sort of special about it. But I felt like because we were placed, we because my school is the area that I live in, it's classed as, you know, in, in a city sort of deprived area in Birmingham. And I hate the word deprived because I just feel like it's not about, it's not about just that. It's about there's untapped potential in young people, especially in areas where you think, okay, there's nothing to it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like over the past few years when I went to secondary school, there was there was this sort of rise of social mobility that I really, really despise. It was sort of bringing teachers from outside of the outside of the local area, outside of Birmingham. And whilst I don't mind that, they they didn't they didn't really try and understand the context of the young people that are living there, their cultural identities their social backgrounds, how, you know, the, the family dynamics, they, it was, it was sort of, we're coming to teach you because we know best. And it's, it's like, we know better than you. This is the curriculum that we're supposed to follow. This is how you obtain the best grades to get to the best sixth form, to get to the best university so that you can get a good job and you can provide for your family. And I felt like that was the mindset of a lot of our teachers in school because, you know, they weren't taught better. It was sort of, this was our schooling system and we passed it down to you and everything is sort of passive. You just expect it to receive that. It doesn't encourage a child to think about themselves personally and their relationship to the planet and to, to other people and to their teachers and, you know, to the people that they interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. 
it doesn't allow young people to think like that. And I feel like that is so damaging. And our emotions are sort of suppressed in school. You go to school to learn in a passive environment. Everything is being done to you. You're not so it's, it's sort of expected to relate the information that you're learning to the real life world. And then when you leave school, you're expected to do everything that an adult is supposed to do without actually being taught what you know anything you're not actually being taught a lot of things that are that relate to the, the real life environment everything is so decontextualized and I feel like the outcome is so much more important to teachers and to, to parents and other people rather than the journey that a young person is going on and, and the identity that they're that they're cultivating and so I was like so compelled I was like I have to do something um, and a lot of young people, they have this urgency, but it's how do we convert the anxiety to agency, to action? How do we actually propel young people to direct action? So in yet, and I, I, I was about 14 at the time, I joined my local youth council. I thought, okay, you think that young people need to ha have more representation. They need to be sitting on board. They need to be talking to policymakers. So I then joined my local youth council. I thought, okay, this is interesting. And we were working on a lot of different campaigns about knife crime awareness because knife crime is epidemic in Birmingham and it's a really big issue. And a lot of that stems from young people not feeling like they belong in the schooling system. And I feel like a lot, um, I, I was I was speaking on a panel like a, a few weeks ago and we was talking about, um, it was about sort of why young people and parents, especially in sort of low socioeconomic areas, they don't see an alternative to education. And I remember saying, and this came just straight off the cuff, and I remember saying, oh, the only alternative to traditional school that I knew was PRUs. And PRUs are pupil referral units there that when young people are taken out of traditional mainstream education, they're put into, you know, a different environment. And it's sort of a temporary move to children, to young people being expelled. Yeah, yeah, thank you. There is an awful lot there that I'd like to pick up on. Thank you very much for that. I mean, first of all, just to go back to that book that you wrote, which I've read, by the way, Struggles with War. Wow. It's incredible. I bought it. I recommend it to listeners. It was an incredible feat of, you know, like empathy and imagination to put yourself in the, in the shoes of people whose lives are, you know, so directly affected by war. And, you know, you, and you wrote it when you were 12, which is absolutely incredible. And it's definitely not something that most that most young people do. But it is interesting that you that you note that, like most of your teachers didn't even know that you'd done this, that, I mean, that should be something that's celebrated. Is it is it that you didn't feel like you could, you would share it? Or is it that they, they never asked? Like, where do you think that disconnect sort of occurred? I feel like I couldn't feel like I could share it because it, it's not something that's sort of expected. It's, it's not something that someone like a young person just normally does. It's it. I just felt like, okay, I, I can't really share it and there's no way for them to know. And it was just sort of this, this thing where I wanted teachers to know about it. Like I, like I wanted to, to inspire other young people to think that way as well, that they, that they could do something similar or they could pursue their own, you know, passion or hobbies. But I just felt like they didn't sort of make an effort to know, even though they heard. I think they some some of them distantly heard about it, but it wasn't something they sort of asked about. It was something that they, they did. They didn't want to know more about, basically. And I sort of felt, okay, well, you know, if they heard about it distantly and they and they don't want to come to me about it, I didn't feel like, okay, I was not going to put the effort in to go and be like, you know, I've done this and this, and I know that you're you're really passionate about this subject. You know, could you give me some feedback or could you, you know, help me develop my ideas further? It was. 
I didn't felt like that sort of environment. And I would say some like some of the, the closest teachers to me did, but just you know your English teacher in general, you would expect maybe from the outside for them to know, but they didn't. And I just felt mm, it was just a bit like yeah, I just sort of felt that disconnect. Yeah, I see. And it's not the sort of thing that you would want to have to keep sort of mentioning to every teacher that you come into contact with, you know, like, so you can see how schools, you're talking about how they sort of, they focus on the things that they focus on, right? And it's it's usually that traffic lighted spreadsheet that that you were describing. And that's mainly because schools like young people are controlled very tightly. Schools are also very tightly controlled from above. And, you know, there's very high accountability on them to you know, improve grades, basically, in maths and English, and also to get attendance as high as it can possibly be. And so that's naturally the things that they are incentivized to focus on to the exclusion of, of all else. And so, so so what you were talking about there, if I'm correct, in just sort of summarizing what you were talking about, you were saying that you found it frustrating that the school system is not responsive, not listening to the people who are the consumers, if you want to use that word, of education, the clients, if you like, the young people and their families. It's not culturally sensitive or responsive to, you know, the needs of or interests of young people. Is that essentially what you, what you were saying is the sort of the main sense that you felt about a bit of unease that, again, just come back to what we're talking about with Lottie, that this is something that's being done to you and regardless of who you are or what you want out of your life? Yeah, exactly that. And I felt like because people people say, oh, you're like the success of the product, the system, why are you complaining? It's like, well, there's many other young people and I don't feel like I'm a, you know, that quote unquote success of the the product, the system. I felt like a lot of the skills that I've developed and a lot of, you know, my character has been developed outside. Like me as a person, I feel like I've developed more outside of school than inside of school. And I just feel like school is just one thing outside of, you know, a bigger, bigger system of education and you can educate yourself way outside of school and and, and, and school sort of sidelines your imagination. It's side Because I felt like, you know, when I was writing that book and when I kept speaking to other young people, they just sort of, there's like a whole fog that's basically covered over you. Everything, I think that's the best way to describe it. Every young person feels like there's a whole fog over them and it's sort of, as soon as the exam's finished, the fog clears up. As soon as, you know, as soon as the pressures of, sort of school goes, the fog sort of clear, clears up and, and young people feel more like themselves. And I always hear a lot of people, um, people saying that around me, they're like, yeah, as soon as the exams finish, I'll feel like myself. So it's like, it doesn't develop, it doesn't help a young person at all. There's pressure to, you know, there's already pressures. You as a teenager, if you like, there's, there's societal pressures, there's societal ideals that you're supposed to live up to. So it's all of that, plus the exams pressure, plus you feeling like you don't belong, Plus all those limiting self beliefs that we that we're not we're not you know we're not like taught in schools about you know limiting self beliefs you know if you tell yourself you're not good enough or I don't have the experience to do this all those sorts of things we're not sort of taught how we can navigate it we're not like we're not encouraged to go on a personal development journey as such and I feel like that undermines a lot of what the schooling system was based on um because teachers always say yeah school develops you as a person but it harms you i feel like school harms a lot of what young people can do and their potential and what they can achieve and there's because everything feels everything is competition based there's not a sense of collaboration effective collaboration and like i remember some of my best memories in school and a lot of young people will tell you some of their best memories in school is not when they were working in isolation is when they were working together with other people 
and when when they sort of had the teachers that knew that knew how to effectively communicate with them and some of the best teachers and mostly all effective teachers all teachers who you know the ones that you remember the most are usually the most effective communicators they're usually the best storytellers and even thinking personally back to me you know some of my best teachers that I've ever had are the most effective communicators are the most like the best storytellers are the the teachers who would step out of the curriculum, the teachers who would encourage you to think, to develop critical thinking skills. And so I sort of went on this journey of, okay, the education system, what are the sort of different models? What are the different pedagogies? And I was trying to research and trying to understand all of this, but I just feel like that's not really accessible for a lot of young people to understand how our education system came to be about. How is it right now? What are the main obstacles that are preventing it from being changed? What is the change that we actually want to see? Because when we're saying change, change looks different for a lot of young people. Change looks different for a lot of people who are in this sort of educational space. And I sort of think, started thinking about, okay, self-directed learning. But like, you know, a few weeks ago, and I want to pose this question to both of you as well, which is about, okay, so if we're encouraging young people to be more self-directed in their learning, does that mean that, you know, if young people don't choose to learn about things like, you know, Black history, choose to learn, think about, you know, the history of colonization and all those sorts of things. Are we then expecting, you know, the self-directed, do we agree with the self-directed crowd of, okay, we're not teaching young people about those things. Young people are still supposed to go on their own journey of, you know, of what they want to learn. Or is it that certain things like colonization, um, the empire, the history that it's had, decolonization, all those things, Do we expect young people to learn them naturally or do we expect young people to choose to learn those things? Or is it that every young person needs to have like some base level understanding of things like that? And so, yeah, I've just been on this journey and connecting with people to find out, okay, what is some of the sort of models that we can use, especially within the UK as well, because I feel like other, other countries, they have sort of, they're more flexible in their learning. You know, teachers can sort of dictate the curriculum and so on. But it's really difficult here because everything just feels really bureaucratic. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. There's a, such a lot in here, and it's an absolute delight to to listen to you speaking, Yumna, and so so eloquently. Obviously, these are these are challenging issues. Can I just ask a couple more things before we move on to Lottie? So so it seems like a lot of the stuff that you're talking about is quite political in nature the book that you wrote was about you know what it's like to be in a war so it's like a humanized you know it's like a personal experience of something that is political in nature and the things that you're talking about around you know black history and decolonizing the curriculum and learning about the history of colonization around the world which certainly was not a part of my history education and I'm not, mm. don't, don't think that it, that it is to this day I wondered to sort of like is there a reason that and and now you're the youth MP for Birmingham aren't you you were talking about joining the youth council yeah what what like even prior to the book maybe like is was there something that really so one thing that I'm really interested in this podcast as well as hearing about people's educational experiences is like to hear about significant learning that happens some often outside of formal educational settings like, what is it that you think sort of awakened you politically? Is, was there a particular thing, a conversation, a person, a book that you read? Is there something that, that sort of that sparked this, this desire in you to learn about these things that often young people, you know, aren't that interested in for various reasons? Yeah, I think, as I said, like, as a child, because I feel like I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was super shy, I, but I just felt like I was more introverted than I am now. I still am introverted, but I just feel like, 
I would always be reading and I would always be consuming and thinking about certain systems and how they're formed. But I also feel like my parents as well, they had a really big sort of, they influenced and inspired me to learn a lot about this sort of stuff. And they always encouraged me to, you know, hold my identity um, like really well, my cultural identity, because, you know, I come from a mixed background. My my parents are both Yemeni and Somali. They've been through civil war, like two civil wars, the war in Yemen and the war in Somalia. They, you know, their sort of journey of how they came to be in the UK and, you know, the, their sort of dreams, they live on in me as well. And I feel like a lot of sort of immigrant parents, especially, they have this sort of ex- expectation of young people to go to to go to school, and they've got that linear sort of direction that they want their family to take to, to lead. But I feel like my parents are way more open, and even when I talk to my to my dad, he we always have these conversations of, and I always tell him like I don't feel like the schooling system in the in the UK is, is like it doesn't work for a lot of young people. It doesn't work for a lot of neurodiverse young people. It doesn't work for, you know, like young people in general who just want to have, to to want to expand their horizons. And he agrees with me. And I feel like, and he, he encourages me to speak about, speak about even more. But yeah, I would say my parents, they encourage me to have a worldview, to not take things at, certain, at face value. And I feel like even as a young child, even before, you know, 12 years old, I always watched the news. Like at a young age, I remember like I saw like the Arab Spring and it was like constantly on the, on the news. But I feel like my interest in the political sort of landscape in the Arab world grew. And and, and because it, it was sort of a personal connection that I had, but those conversations with my dad, it sort of like allowed me to explore, okay, what does social justice mean in the broadest sense? How can you work collaboratively with other young people? And sort of because a lot of the issues that are that I talk about are political in a sense, I feel like I'm more inclined to focus on the issues rather than, you know, political parties and things like that. Whereas I just focus on the issues and how can we connect young people to these issues? How can we make it accessible for them to learn about certain issues? Because often they, they, you know, a lot of jargon and language is used that young people don't even understand. And adults don't understand either. And, and everyone is sort of in this confusion space because the language is, is not accessible for them. And I always say language is the cornerstone of politics. Language is the cornerstone of anything. If you want to communicate a story, you communicate it to people. You, if you want to communicate something, you communicate it to people in, in story because, you know, emotion is the glue that connects stories and memories. And, you know, emotion is, is devoid in, in an educational setting. And yeah, so I just feel like everything sort of has sort of this connection. And I was really keen to explore that connection even at a young age and I still am and and I and I don't ever think that anything should be viewed as a linear sense um whereas the schooling system it, everything is sort of linear but I think I view the world as more connected more interdisciplinary and I didn't see that reflected in my schooling system so I would ask the question why and yeah I think it just spurred on from that and reading books like, you know, Rob Hopkins, Rob Hopkins' book that he, that he has about, you know, imagination. And it sort of helped me to see the link between how the lack of imagination in our schools has a, a bad, you know, impact on young people, has a dangerous impact on young people. Naomi Fisher's book as well helped me explore, you know, the psychological impact that it has on a child, even, you know, attending school. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That book, the Rob Hopkins book, is for anyone who's interested. I think it's called From What Is to What If. Yeah. Um, and it's well worth a read. It's it's brilliant. And just very yeah, last... were also on his podcast, actually. Yeah, I've been looking out for that. I don't think it's been released yet, has it? That it episode. has been 
released, but I don't think I don't very, think very recently. Oh right. Okay, yeah. great. Oh I'll I'll have a listen. And very lastly, Yumna, just a quick one. Where are you up to currently in your formal educational journey? Yeah, so my school didn't have a sixth form, so I I ended up moving, which was really sad. Um but I moved to a girls, um, a girls grammar sixth form. And I just feel like my schooling system, I'm going to have way more things to talk about the schooling system now having been in a, you know, now I'm in a school that there's a lot of, I've just been taken out of my natural, I think I would say my environment and being in a school where there's a lot, there's a, there's a, there's a really like disparity between young people who come from a privileged background and I'm, I feel like I'm more compelled now to talk about the education system having been in a school only for like five weeks and I, I'm already seeing the, the the impacts that it's having not just on me but on girls on my friends who've also moved schools into a girls grammar sixth form that you know is selective and it's yeah I'm, I'm gonna say I'm gonna have so much more to talk about that's literally what I'm gonna say okay thank you very much and uh, what A level is he doing I'm doing biology, chemistry, and politics, which is an interesting mix. It's got the sciences and the social sciences aspects. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting. Right. Thank you very much. Okay. So Lottie, let's come to you now. Can you? Uh, can we again sort of take? Like, let me take you back to your sort of to the beginning of your school journey. What's that been like for you? Have you been happy in school? And what has been your sort of what was what was the journey that you've been on in terms of your awakening, as it were, in terms of wanting to become vocal and active in agitating and campaigning for for change? Uh, it's a good question because um, there are so many things I can pinpoint that I've kind of caused my view on education to form I don't think it's one thing necessarily I was often you know I was a very good student and I got the you know you're a joy to teach etc etc in every parent's evening um but I was a joy to teach because I was quiet and I didn't question anything and I wasn't loud Mm. um but then actually like when I started to question things those comments started to go straight away and I was like okay so I'm starting to question why things are set up but now those comments went straight away. And I think that's really damaging to be told that, you know, this questioning and school teachers, you think critically, question things. And the second you start doing that, it's, it's now a problem. Like I couldn't, I couldn't get over that. And then another thing that I think has always frustrated me throughout school is um, I'm from Southampton. So my, you know, secondary school and sixth form experience was very, very diverse. Southampton's an amazingly diverse area. And I think growing up there has done me a world of good. But to have a school that, and I don't think any school in Southampton that does this effectively, properly celebrate the diversity of their students, I think is awful. So to have all that diversity there and not be properly celebrated, I think, again, is a complete problem and shows the capitalist nature of school of us all trying to conform and be this kind of one person type system and that's wound me up and just to finish to answer Yamna's question earlier about kind of self-directed learning and um avoiding um topics like colonialism I completely agree with you and I think to agree we need to have that difficult conversation that um learning that isn't mainstream school and I, I can't think of the word but people who homeschool and people who do lots of other different types of learning it's still a very white space and it's still a very middle upper class space and that's a complete problem because although, don't get me wrong, I would take homeschooling 
and some of the experiences I've spoken to. And I think you had Locks on a while ago, who was absolutely brilliant and he's in home education. I, I would take his schooling experience any day over mine. But I think to a degree, we've also got to discuss that it's not perfect at all. And actually, we haven't found the perfect system. And we've all got to work in conjunction with schools and with governments, if they'll actually listen, <laughs> to find out what that is. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's absolutely fascinating. And so, and where are you currently in your educational journey? Uh, so I've just finished A-levels and I've moved to the University of Warwick. And, and I'm only three weeks in, but I'm having a great time. And I'm studying politics and international studies. So a lot of that, I was saying again earlier, a lot of you know, what I'm learning is quite funny because it's so critical of um, school. And it's like, oh, I've been saying this all this time and no one's been listening. But university scholars have also been saying this all this time and no one's been listening. Yeah. Um, so it, it's quite crazy to, to be in, but um, no, I'm having a great time. That's great to hear. And so could you just sort of share your thoughts on like the difference between how you're expected to learn when you get to university and the way that young people learn in schools? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a real problem with the fact that it's so different. So in secondary school, you have a set formula, you have a set very specific mark scheme, you have a set questions you're going to get, and you have a set, prospect, uh, not prospectus, syllabus, if you will, and you stick to it. You don't have anything outside of it. You learn how to write an answer that an exam board would like, but you don't write an answer that's necessarily actually academically or you know very good knowledgeably and I moved to university and there I was reading texts all this week about how universities are looking at knowledge and understanding over just spitting out information because let's face it looking back to my whole of my school career especially in subjects I didn't necessarily enjoy as much I definitely was just spewing information without any sort of understanding or passion behind why things meant what and what I cared about. And it's it's a real challenge to to get here and have to change that style of learning with a click of a finger. Yet we could have been doing this years and years and years ago. Um, there is a A-level and a GCSE programme called the HPQ and the EPQ, um, which look at writing extended essays and doing extended projects at a university level. And I took part in that, which has given me a slight leg up. Um, but I don't know why that hasn't been offered to every student who's wanted to come to university, because I can't imagine coming into this setting and learning how to reference for the first time on my own with no one there to help. And it's a very, very confusing system. Um, yeah, I think that's that's basically it. Oh, no. And also the the reading and the how self-directed university is. Like I have four seminars a week at the moment and that's it. And my lectures are all pre-recorded online. And I'm very lucky that I'm a very focused person and I can get through it. Um, but there are definitely some days where I haven't got that motivation. And again, at school, there's someone breathing down your neck the whole time and really, really kind of holding your hand through it. And to go from that to nothing, again, just seems crazy to me that we aren't, you know, slowly transitioning, transitioning students into higher education years and years and years earlier. Um, but yeah, now that's it. <laughs> right, thank you. And so both of you have mentioned self-directed learning here, and you also mentioned interdisciplinary learning and the way that the world inconveniently doesn't break itself down into subject disciplines, doesn't, does it? Like when you watch a news report, <laughs> they go like, in geography news, <laughs> you know, and now in, in sociology, like everything's interconnected, isn't it? And so I would just wonder... Like, what's your initial thought on like? Because obviously, schools, I think it's fair to say, are not 
even remotely interested in self-directed learning. Up until 16, like you say, some people do the EPQ, the extended project at A-level, at sixth form college. But up until the age of 16, I, I, I'm struggling to think of examples apart from the, the work that I've done. And I am in an absolute minority um, flying the flag for learning to learn at the moment where we carve out like 20% of curriculum time essentially for self-directed learning. That is not happening widely. So is that like the first place that you would start? Well, there's two separate questions here. One is about self-directed learning and the other is about interdisciplinary learning. Let's go to you first with that, Yumna. Yeah, I would say that APQ is probably the closest thing that that a young person can experience in a sixth form that is close to sort of self-directed in a sense. But even that is sort of fueled by teachers telling you this topic for an EPQ is sort of better. It would look better. Like even that has its sort of pitfalls, has its downfalls in the sense where you have this pressure to to do a topic that people can understand or something that is something that is easy easily digestible. And yeah, I'm doing my EPQ on the education system because I was like, this is something that I'm definitely going to be talking about, which is self-directed learning as well. And about interdisciplinary, yeah, I would say that the education system is so far, the schooling system is so far removed from what our, what the, you know, what the modern day political and social climate needs right now of individuals who can identify issues in the world, can work collaboratively with other people to sort of find a way to solve those issues. It's so far removed from that. I mean, the world is so full of problems, which is really sad to say, but it's, are we cultivating an environment in a school where a young person feels like they're equipped to tackle those issues? Are we centering their emotions and their experiences and everything that comes with being a person, let alone a young person, in a schooling environment? Is it something that we sort of understand as teachers, as parents? Is the curriculum facilitating that change from, you know, so teenage age into adulthood yeah and I would say that interdisciplinary the only sort of I think Amelia Peterson she works for Elias and the most the thing that I've seen remotely close to interdisciplinary is probably the the a course at um, Elias for those who don't know Elias is London Interdisciplinary School and they've got one undergrad degree that's just started called you know, you look at a different issue in the world, such as junk food marketing, and you look at it from all different angles, the scientific angle, the nutrition angle, you know, the marketing angle. And I feel like our schooling system in, you know, secondary school should maybe operate a little bit more like that in terms of we should accept and understand that interdisciplinarity. I can't say that word still, but we shouldn't like sort of see... We shouldn't try and sort of box everything to make it more easy for us to understand that messy and complexity should be embraced. Yeah, I don't feel like we should box things. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And that you mentioned, for example, the Arab Spring earlier, which I imagine mm. you were very young when that when that I was first so young, happened. Yeah. yeah. And to understand something like the Arab Spring, like it's a very interdisciplinary thing, isn't it? You, like the yeah. history, geography, politics, religion, sociology, psychology, mm -hmm. like international yeah. relations. Like there's, there's so much there. And it's not even like <laughs> if you study history to GCSE level, 
and you study mm -hmm. geography and you study psychology and you study yeah. all of those other things, then you'll understand the Arab Spring, right? <laughs> there's yeah, also there's, exactly. there's more work to do with like how these fields interact and in and sort of intersect. And it's so important. And like recently I had a conversation with this guy who's absolutely fascinating. Who's uh, he's called um, Professor Michael Young. He's been around for, for a long time. He was at my university at the Institute of Education for over 50 years. So he was oh, he wow. was lecturing he was lecturing there before I was born. And he's famous because like for a number of reasons, but one of them is because he edited this book in 1971 called Knowledge and Control, which I think you would like actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's essentially about how uh, he, he talked about knowledge of the powerful, right? And about how he, he thought that the knowledge that was being uh, passed down from generation to generation was knowledge that people in power controlled and that there were, there were reasons behind that. And he later sort of transitioned to a, a slightly different view on knowledge, which is he calls it powerful knowledge rather than knowledge of the powerful. And he's basically saying that, that subject disciplines are really important. Like, for example, like you can learn a certain amount about, you know, like the natural world by studying, you know, the insects that crawl around in your kitchen and, you know, moss that grows in your garden and what have you, right? Like, they're just by through, through yeah. your, your immediate world experience. But if you want to learn how to, you know, make a mobile phone, <laughs> like at some point, you're going to have to mm -hmm. open some textbooks and study these formal disciplines, which take you outside of your, he's, he talks about the reason that some knowledge is powerful is that it takes you outside of your of your comfort zone out of your lived experience and he says that that's what schools exist to do and some people have taken his work essentially to be like a defense of the school system that he's saying mm -hmm. knowledge is powerful therefore we need to maintain these these strong subject disciplines and basically just keep everything as it is and that's not what he's saying at all like he's really into wow. the idea of interdisciplinary learning alongside it and it doesn't have to be like either or right like yeah i would definitely agree with that yeah, like you need to have subject disciplines. I agree that, you know, there is powerful knowledge that you can learn in physics, say, that you can't learn through just like, you know, mm -hmm. living your everyday life. But also the way that physics interacts with lots of other, other of disciplines. And so we should have, you know, curriculum time in the school curriculum where you've got this is interdisciplinary stuff. For example, yeah, let's look at junk, junk food marketing. Let's look at the Arab Spring. Let's look at, you know, at the, the you know, this conversation that we're having now about education and the way that it came to be is itself a cross-disciplinary thing. And so it's interesting that, that this is starting to gain momentum, even among people who are considered to be quite conservative about education. And as you say, the London Interdisciplinary School that Amelia Peterson is now working at looks absolutely amazing. And it's something that um, I'm certainly gonna, gonna follow with a keen eye. Um, okay, Lottie, what are your thoughts on this? Like, are you in agreement with this about self, self-directed learning? And, and what, what sort of, what extent like if you if you were in, like given the gift of the sort of the school timetable what extent to, um would you give over to interdisciplinary learning and to self-directed learning oh uh quite a bit of it i think um i was speaking to i don't know if you, you probably both know Derry hannam was um who talks a lot about giving i think 30 percent of the curriculum over to students yeah um i remember the last time i spoke to him i was like why can't it be like 70 percent or something and he laughed, but then, like, genuinely thinking about it, I think we'd have a much stronger curriculum if we developed it together as young people and as staff in a teaching body. I think we do have an issue with the structure being so, you know, top-down, such a pyramid shape, where I think if we really, truly value collaboration, 
then we need to be modeling that in schools and we need to be doing that and so I definitely think the self-directed learning is really really important and there's often a misconception of it as well that it is literally giving someone the free reins and go for it with no help or whatever but um what I think people aren't quite getting is that like my best friend was homeschooled until she was in year seven and she knows so much about Tudor history because that's what she loved but no she wasn't left to it and told to get on with it or whatever her the people around her and her education community made it so she has so much opportunity to study Tudor history she got to go to different Tudor museums and really hands-on she got to speak to people with huge depths of knowledge and interest about Tudor history and I think that says a lot about it being such an amazing thing self-directed learning because it's almost not self at all it's you get to choose what's going on and then you get this amazing support from everyone else to really push and drive that forward and I think schools definitely could be a place where that happens for everyone and not just people who are maybe in a a different learning setting yeah okay thank you so you say 70 percent self-directed and the thing is that like that 70 percent it's not like there would be no geography history Mm. politics art music learnt in that 70 percent it's just that it would be done in such a way that it that makes sense to that young people see the meaning in Mm. yeah no definitely Hello listeners, the first time I ever spoke to Lottie, she made the excellent point that it's not enough to just rethink education or merely to talk about it. Indeed, without wanting to give away the ending, she will make a similar point later in this episode. Likewise, Yumna has on several occasions made the astute suggestion that we need to stop using the word reform. Reform isn't going to cut it because, well, the status quo doesn't need reforming. Instead, we need to work together, young people and adults alike, to bring about more radical change. There are many areas in which we need to see radical change. One of these is that, despite the best efforts of teachers, because of the way the assessment system works, every year, hundreds of thousands of young people in the UK, and many millions more around the world, leave school feeling like failures. This is both profoundly unethical to my mind and utterly unnecessary. I also believe it leads to a huge waste of human potential. Some people seem to suffer under the illusion that some young people need to fail in order for the successes of others to mean something. This is an incredibly damaging myth. Instead, we need to work together to create an adaptive, intelligent, responsive education system in which every single young person without exception, and whatever the circumstances of their birth or what's going on in their life, is able to enter adulthood feeling like a confident, healthy, self-directed learner. It's going to take a huge amount of time and energy and effort to turn around this ocean liner, but turn it around we will. If you would like to contribute to the Rethinking Education project to help reshape the way that we educate current and future generations, you can now become a patron of the podcast. There are various perks attached to different subscription levels. For example, you can receive an audio-linked written transcript of every episode, which is actually kind of amazing because it allows you to search for a particular phrase and then it will take you to that exact point in the podcast so you can listen back later. You can also receive a PDF of Fear is the Mind Killer, 
the book about how to implement a self-directed learning curriculum in a mainstream secondary school that I co-authored with my amazing friend Kate McAllister, and all subscribers will receive a shout-out on the show. Speaking of which, I would like to say a huge heartfelt thank you to the very first contributors to the Rethinking Education project. These are James Micklebust Hampshire, Ilya Van Wering, Wendy Scher, Claudia Chamberlain, and a wonderful organisation based in California called the Cloud Club Collective, which is quite hard to say. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart. If you would like to add your name to this illustrious list, you can make either a one-off contribution or a monthly subscription by visiting patreon.com forward slash repod. That's spelt R-E-P-O-D. Alternatively, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. Some people seem to prefer this for some reason. There are links to both in the show notes. If you aren't able to contribute financially, you can help out in other ways by recommending a podcast to a friend or sharing a link on social media or by giving us a glowing review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That is a massive help, actually. Again, there are links in the show notes. Thank you so much. Now let's get back to today's conversation with Yumna Hussein and Lottie Cook. Let's just let's sort of throw the net wide now. There, there, there's a list of sort of topics that I've sort of thought of that I think would I would quite like to ask you both about. But I'd like you to guide the conversation as much as possible. And so I just want to start by like essentially there's three categories now that I'd like to talk about. The first one is positives, because often we, you know, like we've been very critical of the schooling system in particular in this conversation. But there's also lots of really good stuff happening in schools. And they're, they're full of teachers who really care about their kids. Kids get to socialize with one another. They get to learn about the world. Like I don't think that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater here. So let's start with positives. Like, what do you see as there being, you know, as being good stuff that's happening in the school system that we can celebrate and raise the profile of? The second bit is what do you see as the major challenges that we that we face at this point in time? And the third one is how we're going to fix those challenges. So let's come to you first, Yumna, with the positives. Yeah, there have been a lot of positives about, you know, my sort of schooling experience, because like I said, I didn't have a particularly bad school school experience it was it was it was fine I mean the memories that I made in school were really great and I think a lot of that was because my teachers sort of related to me especially in year 10 and year 11 where I had teachers who you know culturally were from most some most of them were from the same background as me they were able to understand students and I felt like my school sat within a larger community and I think that a lot a lot of like sort of you know em- empathy communication sort of understanding you know each other's peers I felt like that was really developed in you know in my classes in secondary and everything sort of had a community feel about it whereas now I feel like I don't um, and my school seems very detached from the community I felt like my secondary school was very much in touch with the local community so yeah I would say the positives were that to a certain degree, to a certain extent, some teachers went outside of the curriculum and they they encouraged us, they encouraged us to pursue our passions outside of school. And I, the second positive of that was obviously the memory that I made with my class. 
it was very community feel everyone felt like they knew everyone else no one really felt like they were left out of anything everyone sort of felt like they belonged um and the third positive that i would say is that we felt like we could contribute to something bigger than ourselves we sort of looked outwards and there's a sense of ambition and hope in schools that are very community led and mine was was like that so i would say those were my positives okay great thank you and now let's do let's like do all three like for you and then we'll come over to lottie so so what do you see as the main challenges that we face currently i would say the main challenges is obviously young and not even young people but stakeholders within the schooling ecosystem feeling like they don't have agency over the curriculum over changing the actual system aside from um, our curriculum right now the you know the issue with the rise of social mobility the increasing you know increasing there's been a lot of academies that are popping up around the country and a lot of them are sort of traditional teachers you know following the traditional mainstream education system without actually understanding students and their needs and their concerns and obviously the political side of it of government you know government just not caring about young people at all just I just feel like the government, they, they have such an important responsibility in asking and consulting young people on what our schooling system is, making it more aware for parents of the alternatives of traditional schooling. It's not really, not even advertised, it's not sort of known that there are a lot of alternatives. Like I said, when I was in, when I was younger in secondary school, I had no idea that you could go to a self-managed learning college, for example. That was just not something that that I knew of it wasn't some it wasn't something that was practiced by anybody that I knew around me it was not something that I'd heard and the only alternative that I heard was PRUs people referral units I didn't know that you know I didn't know about self-directed learning I didn't know about the different pedagogies that teachers have been being taught and I felt like you know every half term it was like I felt like some teachers they would learn a new thing in that in their in their teacher training day and then just practice it on young people using them as guinea pigs without actually like asking young people is this what you want to learn is this a model or is this a method that works for you and i would say obviously the political angle of government and also you know governors the role that teachers have to play and parents have to play especially parents because you know, when you're that age of 12 to 16, 17, a lot of young people get a bit more distant from their parents and parents don't really have as much involvement in what they're learning. A lot of parents do, but there are some that they, they don't have that sort of connection or bond with, you know, their, their children of what are you learning in school? You know, is, is the school work for you? Could we maybe explore a different pathway? There's conversations, they're not really sort of had. It's something that you're, you're expected to send your child to a normal school. Yet, yeah, I would say those are sort of the main obstacles and also young people not being represented enough anywhere, whether that's policymaking in terms of education. We are the biggest receivers of school, and but when we're not even told about how the system actually was made to be. Like, it, it blows my mind how a lot of young people don't even know that the schooling system was built in the industrial era and it hasn't developed or hasn't adapted much since then. It has adapted, it has changed, but not, not, to, the, not to the degree of impact that we wish it could have and young people obviously feeling like um they can't convert their frustration into into something that is meaningful is also a, is, a, is a main you know sort of obstacle 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And the mindset, especially the mindset that we have, it's really damaging to us. Okay, okay, thank you. So can I come back to, um, there's a few things I'd like to pick up on. One of them, like you talked about the rise in social mobility, and you mentioned that earlier, and you're talking about this as being a bad thing. And people might be listening to this and thinking, well, surely social mobility is a good thing. Like we don't want people to remain stuck you know, on the lower rungs of the economic ladder or whatever you might have, what you might want to describe it. What do you see as the problems with this this idea of social mobility? Yeah, I would say that there's a lot of issues within social mobility, and I certainly experienced that within my school. It was sort of the area that you're living in is an, an institution-deprived area. It was there was sort of this expectation that, yeah, you have to come out of your areas to create the impact that you want to have. And I just felt like that was so wrong. And I and I feel like social mobility was one of the, the main issues. And, you know, especially in the UK, Britain's social mobility problem definitely has been misunderstood. What about the young people who don't rise up this ladder that you keep talking about of social mobility of, you know, giving students good teachers, high quality education and sort of them progressing up the ladder what about the young people that are left at the bottom of the ladder and, and maybe that's not because that, that maybe that's because yeah they experience the same education that the other students have had but maybe the system doesn't work for them i think the, the when we talk about rising social mobility it completely negates the notion or the, the concept that okay maybe the education system doesn't even the schooling system doesn't even work for young people and the rise in social mobility it makes it seem like they always put you know those figureheads of ethnic minority of people who in their lives have success to achieved you know achieved great things but it's like what about the people who are still stuck at you know who who don't maybe understand what the schooling system wants them to get to and it's just it's like it's like what about the other people what why are we just focusing on the people who have quote-unquote made it and maybe that's not even you know, because of the schooling system, maybe that's in spite of it. And I think you mentioned that before is we're constantly constantly in the state of survival and the rise of social mobility, it propagates that notion of, oh, we need to, we just need to survive it. We There's no, there's no sort of hope of, you know, we can actually thrive if we create a system that centers care, empathy and nurturing and, and, and it centers on those sort of those sort of emotions, then we can we can actually survive. And so we don't need to we don't need to try to overcome the obstacles. Maybe we remove the obstacles completely rather than trying to navigate them. Maybe that would be a much better position for us to be in. Yeah, thank you. That's very, very eloquently put, I think. And there are lots of, yeah, as you say, there are well, well understood and well documented concerns with this with this idea that does seem, like I say, at face value, you think like, oh, who wouldn't want to be upwardly mobile? But it's sort of like you're mm-hmm. just letting the odd person succeed, like, oh, yay, like somebody from a poor background or from, a, from an ethnic minority went on to achieve, you know, against the odds and is now a lawyer or whatever. And- yeah, more education doesn't necessarily mean more mobility at a societal level in terms of class. And we can go on to this for days, but, you know, the, the association between a cl- person's class origin and their educational achievement and their educational attainment, it must weaken whilst, you know, the, the, the association between their educational attainment and their class destinations must strengthen. Like, it, it's so mind-boggling to me. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And then can I just pick you up on the second thing you were talking about, about the government or the Department of Education, Not it doesn't seem like they particularly care about the view of young people 
they did, for example, you know, like recently Nadim Zahawi was, you know, talking to the to the teaching profession and was saying, oh, I'm really going to consult with you. I really want to, you know, keep you on board. But he's only, he's not even talking to teachers. He was at a head teachers conference there. And so he understands that he needs to consult with head teachers. And I think that they see them as their main sort of client group, if you like, but that they're not particularly interested in, in you know, listening to or responding to the views of young people. And again, I'd sort of, I, I just wonder, because you're the youth MP for Birmingham, right? And again, some people might think, well, you say that there's, you know, a lack of representation and yet you have this platform and you have a voice. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about that. What has been your personal experience? Have you even sort of encountered barriers uh, since you've been, you know, involved in youth politics? Yeah, I would definitely say that a lot of youth initiatives, and I'm not going to be mentioning names or anything as such, but I'm just saying a lot, a lot of youth initiatives, a lot of youth organisations, there needs to be a really separate distinction between youth consultation, which is often just one way. It's sort of you give young people say for example a policy document or something that you and it changes that you want to implement and you're asking young people okay would you like to amend this would you you know is there anything that you would change there's a difference between youth consultation youth participation and actually youth led part youth you know youth actually leading the change that you want that we want to see there's really separate distinctions between that and a lot of youth initiatives a lot of youth organizations are very high hierarchical in the sense where certain young people's voices are heard more than others and you know within that comes you know class of if you're from you know I've experienced myself when I've been in certain meetings or certain rooms and people you know people have said okay oh what do you know you haven't even had much experience of the world or when you're older you'll see that sort of thing it's not sort of you know we, we, we acknowledge and we respect your lived experiences and you know the data and the research sort of backs up what you're saying about the educational the problems with the education system. And so I feel like a lot of issues are sort of seen as a lot of, you know, youth initiatives, they're very individualistic in the sense where you they don't sort of explore how that young person's lived experience or that young person's sort of the research that they've done and what what they've seen, what they've observed in their local area, how does that fit into a whole system? That that link is often missing. And I felt that myself where, you know, the young people's voices, okay, we get into the room, but is but does it mean that okay, we can't we feel confident enough to vocalize our concerns? Is it, you know, all this all those things need to be taken into account of, okay, okay, we you mentioned youth representation in terms of, you know, youth MP, but it's like, do does my local MP even contact me regularly to see, okay, what are the issues that young people are facing? Or is it that I have to always make the constant effort to constantly update my MP or just any policymaker that I've had any contact with? Do I have, do, does it need to be me the one who's constantly contacted contacting them and doing the research and trying to understand actual collaboration where it's just not one-sided um, and oftentimes they say it's effective collaboration but it's one-sided and only one side truly benefits from that collaboration and it demoralizes a lot of young people especially within activist spaces and especially when you're talking about an issue so personal like the schooling system because you're still in the system bear in mind you're still attending school you're still doing the things that you're you're still you're, you're still having education being done to you you're still having school being done to you you're still seeing you know teachers themselves who are saying I came into the schooling system to change it but in, in fact this the system has changed me I felt very washed I've I felt manipulated. I felt like I've had to adhere to rules and conditions and policy, and it's felt so bureaucratic. 
they're saying that to you and then you're coming home and you're trying to work on changing the system that you're still in so yeah i i know i've gone on a bit of a tangent but yeah <laughs> mm. no no it's great thank you very much okay lottie let's come to you for for your take on the positives and the challenges and then we're going to come back together to think about some solutions so first of all positives what do you see that's that's really good out there and this could be in the school system this could be more widely in other things that you've seen i think one really good thing i have to say is some of the teachers i've had i have to give so much credit to to the person I am today down to them I think because you're in contact with them so much I think to a degree so my teachers have become second parents and I just yeah I cannot thank them enough for everything they've done for me I think the relationships formed the support outside of kind of academic stuff as well as academic stuff they've been yeah they've just been absolutely incredible but with saying that that's like a handful of teachers I can pinpoint who've had just about enough time and energy under a system that's really not great for them right now to try and you know benefit me and benefit my peers so you know come with a challenge already I think one thing I would love to see improve is the protection of teaching staff and their mental health and um, how they're getting on with things because they especially over this pandemic have become not just teachers but therapists they've become doctors they've become literally anything you can think of like teachers have dealt with it so I think that's something I'd really really like to see change that's about all I can think of at the moment I think yeah teaching I think it's something I'm really passionate about right now uh, people who really need protecting and they have often situations where they're expected to do so much and when they don't quite hit it of course students are going to be upset and they're going to complain but um to a degree when they can't you know do something because the system's not letting them then they they can't do something it's not going to work so yeah that's something i'd really like to see yeah thank you thank you so when when you first said that i sort of wondered whether there was a a tension there because you said earlier that you feel like you are the person that you are today in spite of the school system not because of it and then you sort of said you know that some of the teachers have been really influential in helping you become the person that you've been come today but I think it's so is the way that you would resolve that to say that you were saying like this is a small minority of teachers who were going against the grain of the way that things are and they're working within a system and it almost in a sense that 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 those relationships happen sort of in spite of the system not because of it is that how you would frame that yeah yeah definitely um I think the teachers who I really really you know clicked with have been those and I'm gonna embarrass her here she listens to this anyway so she knows she's gonna be mentioned (laughs) but I had an amazing business teacher in year 11 who I've actually wrote most of my stuff in the diverse ed book about because she was a perfect example of someone who, despite school being so heteronormative, classist, racist, like you name it, not standing for any of that in her classroom. And I can't tell you how safe I felt going in there, despite business being a very male-dominated space. I knew I would never have an issue with that in there because she was so brilliant at not letting it affect anyone in that room. But that's because she could go against the grain to start with one she's amazing anyway don't get me wrong but she had a minority a small amount of classes she maybe had more time than your average teacher to be able to do that and I don't think all do she had the mental capacity to be able to do that and stand up to students and I don't think all do at the moment which is yeah which is really you know awful yeah exactly what you said yeah yeah thank you thank you and and the other thing you said about 
that this sort of merges into challenges about about we need to do more to protect teachers and or to support teachers in their mental health as well. And that's something that's I think often not really talked about that much. We talk, when we're talking about at the moment, people are talking about there being a mental health tsunami that the, the statistics increasing at an alarming rate but the, we're nearly always talking about mental health among young people and i would like to come on to that but i do think that it's important to talk about this in terms of teachers i think in any school at any time that i've been that i've been a teacher there was a handful of teachers off at any point in time with long for, for the, the phrase is often long-term stress right they're off you know for an indefinite amount of time for whatever reason we know that there's a huge issue around workload and that there's a massive you know the retention crisis you know there are lots and lots of ex teachers in this country and that's going to increase post pandemic i think especially head teachers who've been under incredible strain recently and i think that it's an excellent point that we need to do more about that so while we're on this while we're on the topic of mental health i'd be interested to hear your your take on this and also i know that you heard you listened to the last episode yumno with mary helen which only came out a couple of days ago I don't know if you have you had the chance to listen to that, Lottie. No, not as of yet, but I'm definitely telling you on it. Okay, that's that's fine. I just wanted to know if just as we go into the conversation. So first of all, let's come at it from the perspective of absenteeism first, because the, the statistics mm-hmm. around that are really alarming. So there's there's roughly speaking, there's about a million young people in this country classed as persistent absentees, mm-hmm. and of those, about a hundred thousand miss over 50% of their time in school. Mm-hmm. Um, there's about 30,000 who don't attend at all. And then there's a, the, you know, that's before you count, there's another sort of 100,000 or so who homeschool. And then there are also issues around, you know, related to this around off-rolling and exclusions and like, you know, the attendance is a hot topic with many sort of facets. But in particular, what I've seen recently is that there's been a big dip, especially at secondary post-pandemic so like there's far fewer kids attending school now than there were before the pandemic and that is not accounted for by the coronavirus right like like for some reason the covid pandemic has you know put kids in a position where there was school closures and lockdowns and what have you but many of them haven't gone back and that was one of the first things that Nadim Sahawi said when he came into post as the new secretary of state for education was we need to get to the bottom of this attendance crisis and figure out how to fix that how to get more kids back in school. Um, I mean, it's a big topic, but I wonder if you've got any any thoughts on this. Like, why is it, do you think, that we're seeing this dip post-pandemic? And do you think that that getting more kids to attend school is, you know, a black and white issue, that it's a, you know, that that's the thing that we need to be doing with regard, and then that, that sort of links to the mental health question. So let's go to you first, Yumna. What's your take on this sort of wave of, of, of secondary school-based absenteeism that we're seeing? Yeah, I would say it was, it's, it's kind of funny that, you know, as soon as Nadim um, Zahawi, he, you know, became the Department of Education, in the Minister of the Department of Education, it's funny how he picked up on the absentees that are missing school, but not really how the education system, how the schooling system actually contributes to young people missing school, how it's actually the fault of the system. There's the, the major flaws are in the in the schooling system that makes young people want to miss school. And it's because, you know, there's a lot of different things to it, but a lot of that 
stems from okay the mental health aspect of you know as soon as we've come back to school post pandemic it's felt like that there's not been you know teachers constantly always saying yeah your 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 mental health actually matters but it's still they're still bombarding you with tests they still they still don't try to cultivate that relationship with you there's still that sense of disconnect there's there's still that sense of why am i learning this it doesn't even relate to my like environment it doesn't relate to real life a lot of that relates to the fact that yeah mental health illnesses have increased because all you know you know the schooling system doesn't help us a lot of the you know um mary was saying it before but there just seems to be that a lot of the issues that young people are experiencing stems from the schooling system especially you know absentees a lot of a lot of them are you know they're off role there's some you know young people are considering should we home educate that's why them um a lot of them are missing school because they're feeling like yeah a lot of what i learned doesn't really apply to me they they're not really supported in terms of their mental health illnesses a lot of schools don't have a mental health dedicated coordinator there's not somebody that they can talk to because they haven't developed those relationships with teachers or you know people at their sc- staff at their school so i would say there's a, there's a really big problem and the, the attendance issue like for example me i remember in secondary school every single half term we had at the start of like the start the first day of half term we'd have this presentation we'd have this attendance and it would show you if you attend school more it was i don't i can't remember exactly what it would but it would, it would be like if you attended school 90 percent of the time this is the grades that you're sort of expected to get. If you listen, if you attend the school 80% of the time, this is the grades that you're supposed to get. Attendance and outcome, the link between attendance and the, out, the final outcome and the destination, it makes us feel like we're only going to school to get grades. There's not sort of this wider understanding of human development or anything like that in terms of school. And especially when you're routinely being told that, like every, I'm telling you, every single half term, that was the first presentation we were shown of the attendance of you have to you must attend school not exploring okay if you don't attend school why might the reasons you not to like we were expected to attend school whether we were ill or not and this is before pandemic and yeah it, it was it was feeling of if, you, if there was nothing wrong with you you still have to attend school like there's no reason for you not to because to, you, you, if you want to get the best grades you have to attend school like every single time yeah it was, yeah yeah it's very strong, isn't it? I remember we used to run this scrolling like PowerPoint at parents' evenings, and there was like these these graphs, which was like you know the percentage attendance plotted against exam grades. Exactly is the way it's like if you want to if you want to get good grades, you need to attend school, and as though it's this sort of simplistic equation. And it's, there are often sort of issues with this, aren't there? So like for example, like with you, you mentioned Naomi Fisher earlier in her book Changing Our Minds. She's a yeah. clinical she's a clinical psychologist. For anyone mm-hmm. who isn't aware of Naomi's work or has heard of her, and one of the things that they often do, they did a they do a thing called a I think she called it a graded hierarchy, and yes. it's ba- basically based on like exposure therapy, right? So if somebody's mm-hmm. got like let's say they've got a, a, an irrational fear, let, let's yeah. say of, of spiders, then you can gradually, you know, you show them a picture of spider, and then the next week they're in the same house as a spider, and the next week, and gradually, you know, you get to a point where they can hold a spider in their hand and not freak out. So you gradually in- increase their exposure to the thing that they're afraid of and she was she was creating graded hierarchies 
for kids who were, had become school phobic, uh, if, if, that, if that's even a phrase, like they, they've become non-attenders, for example, uh, school refusers. And and she was sort of, you know, exposing, she was like, so one, one time the kid comes into the foyer, the next time they come in and they meet with a teacher. And the kid and the parents were saying, but it's school that's the problem. <laughs> like, like, this is not an irrational fear. Like, school is making my child feel upset, unwell, anxious, bullied, picked on, you know, like, worthless, failure, whatever the, whatever the particular label that they were ascribing to it, the experience that they were having. And so increasing somebody's exposure to something that is actually causing harm is obviously not a good idea. You know, that's that's a problem. And so I think that it's, we often have this very simplistic narrative around attendance that, you know, attending in a, is a good thing. And the flip side of that being if your child is not attending school, that there is something really seriously wrong and social services need to get involved because, you know, school attendance is like an indicator of, of oh, norm- yeah. normality. There are huge problems around this, aren't there? Yeah, definitely agree with that and it would if i like the you know the slideshow presentation that you were talking about it would show you yeah the number of hours that you're missing and it's everything the number of hours that you're missing the number of lessons that you're missing but it's like what is the value that i'm gaining out from those lessons what are the hours you know what does the hours represent like everything is just like i said focused on the final outcome and you're talking about the exposure about naoma fisher yeah i just find that incredibly sort of like it's incredibly eye-opening yeah thank you would you like to come in here Lottie yeah that'd be great I just wanted to touch on what you were just saying about those powerpoints we always get shown with the um oh the amount of hours you miss equals I don't know this much your grade lowered or whatever and because I remember at my school there was a poster that was put up that was taken down quite quickly because of the awful attention it got but it said at the top of it it had like you forget your pen equals you can't write in class or whatever and then it went all the way down the list and at the end of it was like because you forgot your pen you now have no job and because you <laughs> have no job you can't afford to eat and because you can't afford to eat you're gonna die that's literally what it said at the end of it <laughs> oh and then at the bottom of this poster it was like forgetting your pen equals death or whatever and it, it's comical like thinking about it now it just makes me laugh at how silly it was but, like, no wonder people don't want to come to school when they're having awful situations and we treat them with forgetting your pen means you're going to die and not coming in, like, one or two days a week because, you know, you're too depressed to get out of bed. It's going to mean you don't pass your GCSEs. Like, it's ludicrous and it makes me so angry. Um, and even that, like, some reaction of teachers can often be, oh, nice of you to show up or whatever. And that, again, makes me really angry because, actually... If they only come into school and are met by, oh, nice of you to show up and you've missed so much, there's no point of you being here, et cetera, et cetera. Then why are they here in the first place? They're going to be thinking, I want to go home. So I think meeting students who are having a terrible time with compassion rather than responses like, if you forget your pen, you're going to die, I think would be absolutely wonderful. And it's simple. It's really not difficult. Schools can easily do that. So why aren't we? And I think this, this just shows that the system isn't based on, you know, creating morally good human beings or being morally good human beings. It's based on creating workers and people who can uphold the economy. It's like, it's not based on social mobility because at the end of the day, I don't think the government really do care about that because then we wouldn't have students who are, you know, falling behind and really struggling every year. I don't think it's about anything the government say about school being a place that, you know, every child is succeeding. I completely disagree because it's clearly not at the moment, but 
they really do need to change that. But that was my little rant about this stupid poster that got in the news <laughs> and was taken down very fast because it was it was not it was not good. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You do see lots of very silly things like this. And on this, I mean, on this attendance thing, you know, there are many young people who are really struggling to be in school. Clearly, you know, a million persistent absentees. That's defined as somebody who misses more than 10%, by the way, of persistent absentee. And that's interesting, because it's like, it's not that high, is it 10%? Mm. It doesn't seem that high, but it is. It's one day every two weeks. And if you add that up over, you know, over 40, over 40 weeks in a year, then that's like, you know, four weeks of school missed on top of all of the other holidays. So you can see how that that does add up. Um, and there are lots of people who who describe these young people who are sort of voting with their feet, the 100,000 who miss more than half their time in school, the 30,000 who don't attend at all, as canaries in the mine. You know that metaphor is like how they yeah. used to have a canary in the coal mine and if it keels over, then they know that there's, you know, there's not enough oxygen in there and they all need to get out sort of thing. And that the, these kids who are sort of voting with their feet, who are being, becoming school refusers, are seen as canaries in the mine in the sense that they are not able to, to cope in this, you know, what many see as a toxic environment. And there's this other, there's this associated sort of phenomenon of like, so there's a, there's a Facebook group with about 20,000 parents in it. It's called Not Fine in School. And it's literally that phrase where it's like, that there are a lot often people who are really struggling at, at home, young people who are struggling at home, perform perfectly well in school. They do attend. They are, you know, they're polite. They do remember their pen and so on. <laughs> but often they're really, really struggling. Like, and it's and it's not clear. And as a, as a as a teacher, I used to often find that you know you'd be at parents' evening, you'd be describing somebody's kid, and the parent would go, "It's like you're describing somebody else. Like this is not my child. Like they're a nightmare at home. They're slamming doors. They're really not happy. They argue at every turn." And it's really weird. And it's like, so this, so this phrase, like, but they're fine in school. It's like, actually, they're not fine in school. They're somehow masking their behaviors. And, and it's almost like neither of those versions, the Stepford child who is polite and raises their hand and, you know, does their homework and the door slamming, you know, one at home. It's like neither of those is sort of like the authentic child. It's like both of them are sort of like opposite ends of this of this spectrum of behavior where they, it's like they're not okay in either of those situations. They're not being their authentic self. They're not happy in either situation. And if that's true that this million persistent absentees are canaries in the mind, then there may be many, many millions more who are really struggling within that system, but who, you know, who for some, for whatever reason, it isn't being flagged by them or their parents or teachers. And so everyone sort of assumes that everything's fine when actually, you know, maybe it isn't. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I hear that a lot where they people always say, Yeah, it's like you're describing a different a different person and the way and, and I and I really like when you said neither of those sort of people are living sort of their authentic self and we're not we're not sort of taught not even taught in a sense, we're not sort of encouraged to go on that, like I said before, like personal development, personal growth sort of journey and we're sort of expected to figure all of that stuff out when we're uh, 18 which is a bit ridiculous yeah thank you do you want to respond to that as well Lottie yeah definitely I think just want to mention that I think we all need to call it out for what it is um and the whole focus on attendance in school is just completely ableist um even like attendance rewards and stuff like you don't know why a child's off school and the fact that they've come in in the first place if they've come in once over a whole year for someone that could be the biggest achievement 
compared to someone who's coming in every single day and kind of that's their daily they're not really getting much from it but yeah we're rewarding you know this attendance and I I think we just need to say what it is it is ableism um because schools and governments are really scared of you putting it crudely and when you do I think it forces them to think about it and act yeah thank you thank you and that's something that somebody I can't remember if it was one of the conversations that we had in the campfire conversation but someone was talking about attendance awards was that you Lottie? It might have been, yeah, mixed with, I can't remember her name, but it was Ellie and her mum. That was um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think both of us had mentioned it, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the, that whole idea. I was at a school once where they even had one for, for teachers. So we all stood around in the, oh my God. <laughs> in the staff room. <laughs> well, they were like, oh, this teacher's had 100% attendance. And everyone had to clap and they had to go and like collect a bottle of Prosecco or something. And it was so that, you know, the parent who'd had to stay home, you know, to, to nurse a sick child or to visit, a, you know, an ailing relative. I mean, it's almost funny because it's, you know, it's just like, it's, you know, they have to laugh or cry. And it's so just ridiculous, isn't it, that you would that you would be punishing young people. And you're right. That's a, that's, I can't think of a more ableist thing that you could do than, than to hold attention awards either for teachers or for young people. It's ridiculous. And so so let's come into, like, we've, we've sort of touched upon it a little bit already, but related to this, obviously there's a, this, behind all of this sort of like absenteeism, there's clearly issues, and often those issues relate to mental health. And we know that the, that the numbers are going up sharply. Um, mental health problems have increased by around 50% in the last three years, something like around one in six young people age five to 16, these are all statistics from, from mental health charities, one in six young people have a mental health problem. And of those, around 70% have had what's classed as no appropriate intervention. So th there's a big sort of undiagnosed element to this. The numbers of young people who are self-harming is increasing at an alarming rate. Probably the most widespread statistic that I see around is that something like one in four girls it's, it's higher in girls than it is in boys but it's quite high in boys as well i think it's around sort of one in 10 one in 12 boys one in four teenage girls self-harm one in four like that's so high that's suicidal ideation so actually people young people attempting suicide is really high and again has doubled in the last 10 years and this is of of grave concern and i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this in particular with regard to the rise like it's a very difficult question and mental health is obviously very complex and there are many sort of factors that contribute to somebody's sense of mental health or mental ill health but what's your sense of like what's behind this why are so many young people really struggling at the moment uh, let's go to yumna first yeah i would say that there seems to be like one the lack of belonging for a lot of young people right now the second is the exam pressures and the first like the school pressures the pressures that come from teachers from parents surrounding education and also the the, the, the pressures parallel to that is the pressures that come from society society's ideas and ideals and expectations and you know how increasingly because of the hyper-capitalistic culture that we live in now makes, we're, we're constantly on a treadmill as in we always want the latest thing. Everything is sort of on this cycle and we can't, we can't really, we can't stop. It's difficult to stop. And so it influences the, the, the how, you know, our mental health is 
and all of that and it, and, it, and it makes you feel like you constantly have to want more to get more and if you don't then there's fear of missing out is the FOMO that surrounds it and I would say that that all of that combined has a negative impact on our on our mental health and that's why a lot of you were talking about girls and it would be interesting to to understand or to even explore why the gender differences why more girls are experiencing why more girls are you know self-harming and it's unfortunate because we don't know this it's you you know a lot of young people they're not diagnosed with mental health illnesses and we're not sort of given the space in school to talk about it there still still seems to be a sort of stigma in certain communities around you know mental health illnesses who we can go who can who can we seek for help and a lot of that now there's been more aware awareness about around it but it's still the system in fact like you can add on a lot of things like you can be like oh that there's a helpline there's more resources there's more support but if the actual system is hasn't been cultivated with trying to improve young people's if, if it hasn't been cultivated and it hasn't been if the foundations of that was never built on you know understanding well-being and our general health then most of the things that you can add on top of oh helplines resources there's certain things that are available a lot of young people aren't going to be confident to go seek out those resources or that support if the foundations of the system that we're currently in right now hasn't been cultivated with the culture of care empathy and agency that's what i that's what i feel yeah wow thank you thank you so we need to have a culture of care empathy agency is the third one yeah. i'm just mm-hmm. noting those down because that's that's very good so just to recap so you were talking the, the initial thing was like a sense of a lack of belonging could you expand on that a little bit please yeah of course I feel like a lot of young people feel like they have to follow a certain pathway. Everything is sort of traditional in the sense, like if you don't follow this sort of pathway, you're seen as the other and the the otherization of young people makes them feel like they don't belong as in if they step out of the the norm then that they feel like some young people they feel like they might be a target for certain things and obviously when we're talking about young people all these different young people they they have different experiences they come from different cultural backgrounds they're different in terms of you know the the the, you know if they're from a working class background their family income all these things need to be considered so you know if you are from if you're suffering you know you're financially insecure if you don't have any sort of stability in your life all these different 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 factors influence your mental health and your mental well-being and the feeling like you don't belong is like you you don't particularly fit into a box because we're constantly being conditioned that if we want to fit into society we have to fit into this perfect box and we don't embrace the complexity of the world and of humans in schools and so that it mirrors it, mirror, it mirrors our feelings when we think about the lack of belonging sort of I don't know if I'm making sense but in my head it sort of makes sense of you know if we don't fit into a certain box because we haven't been conditioned or we haven't even been like we haven't sort of we don't sort of understand that the complexity of the world is important we sort of feel like we have to fit in and when we don't we're made to feel otherwise and that's when all the pressures and all of that accumulates into us you know developing mental health illnesses that has a bigger impact in our life later on yeah thank you okay Lottie what's your take on this yeah, no, I completely agree um, with everything you said, Yamna. And I think I just want to add the funding schools get to support young people with mental health. And I think a while ago, they, I cannot remember the exact figure, but they said that they were you know, giving more funding to mental health in schools and they really pushed it with Dr. Alex. 
And to me, that felt like a publicity stunt because the number was, you know, quite small in comparison to the amount they're giving out to, I don't know, military funding and military spending. And I would remember comparing it to lots of other, you know, things they're doing yearly and it just seemed ludicrous to me. But because they're not getting this funding, we're not seeing proper psychologists in school. We're seeing, you know, mental health first aiders, which don't get me wrong, are amazing. And I think that's a wonderful program, but there's only so much they can deal with and they can, you know, sort out. And saying that they maybe have one in school, maybe two in school. And I remember at my sixth form, there was one person who was our set kind of counsellor we were supposed to go and see, um, who tried her absolute best, but didn't have any formal training in it and was almost guessing as she went along. So it was definitely a struggle. And then the secondary school I went to attached to the sixth form, again, there was a small team of people we could go and see but they were normally busy. I remember taking a very upset friend there once and the response I got was, sorry, we're busy, like come back later. And students who were struggling hearing and hearing the words, sorry, we're busy, come back later, must be a real kick in the gut. And I think we need to, you know, there are so many issues I would say we can start from the bottom up and deal with in a grassroots fashion. But I think here we really need to start getting this funding into schools and providing them proper training, proper support, proper staff members who actually know what they're doing and have their dedicated time to do that. Because not only will it help students, it will stop poor teachers who are already teaching several classes a week, dealing with their own family lives, having to be therapists. But yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there is certainly like a massive need for more support for young people. The like, CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, was poorly funded and, and was inadequate to meeting the challenge before the pandemic. And it's, and it's even more so now. But you could argue that sort of like we're trying to deal with the shut the stable door after the horse has bolted, right? That, that actually, you know, we need to be figuring out why so many young people are entering crisis in the first place and prevent them from doing that. And of course, there are multiple layers to this. Like I would never say that this is a single issue problem, right? And like you say, the fact that, that it affects girls more than boys is important and important to understand. I think social media is a big part of that. And I think that with the data and now, you know, is, is mounting that social media is especially damaging for teenage girls' mental health, especially the sort of like one to many, you know, social media accounts like, you know, like TikTok and Instagram and so on. Um, yeah. So there, there are many, there are many dimensions to this. But it, but it's a very sort of hot. It's a very like emotive issue, as you would as you would expect. And I just wonder. So so at the start of the last episode, it began with a clip from from Mary Helen Imodino Yang, who, in, if case you haven't come across her, Lottie, she's a um, a professor of neuroscience. She's a former school teacher and a professor of neuroscience based in the states. And she looks at the the role of emotions and sociality and culture in learning, and that this is all integrated. That we don't have like separate, you know, learning. Um, modules in the brain for just like learning information that it's it's all embedded culturally and emotionally and so on and we we sort of touched upon mental health and self-harm in particular and she sort of said that that self-harm if you think about what self-harm is it's like a desperate attempt for a young person to to feel something in response to something that they have done essentially and that there's this sort of she described it as a perverse pleasure that comes out of that that it's something that they have done and she talks about how the lack of control 
that many young people feel over their lives is one contributory factor in this. And I shared this online, and just this morning, it's been getting some quite strong responses. Somebody says, somebody said, it's utterly appalling to blame schools for this, that the reasons for mental health are complex, and to lay the problem at the door of schools is unfounded and unfair. And I can see, you know, like I say, it, it elicits strong feelings on both sides of the argument. What's your take on this as young people and as people who, and I know that we've spoken before about how, you know, you, like some of your friends have dealt with some issues uh, like this. What's your take on this? Let's go Lottie first and then Yumna. I definitely understand where they're coming from if it's not fair to kind of blame it all on schools and stuff. I think what you said about social media is it's definitely an issue, especially with things like TikTok. I won't go into it in too much detail because it's gory, but um, I don't know if either of you remember a few months ago, a horrible video of the man shooting himself was circulated on TikTok and many people watched it without knowing what they were getting into. Um, and I do know of some people that's had really horrible lasting effects for. I don't think they ever got to the bottom of how it was circulated, but with TikTok, because you have everything kind of coming up in front of you, you you can't escape it unless you know what's about to happen and I think that is incredibly scary that you know there's access to that as a young person who maybe might not know how to use it yet and this is what they're being exposed to at what 13 14 it's terrible but to flip that on its head schools treat social media in my opinion like it's the scariest thing and that we just shouldn't use it I try to think about a time where I've actually been taught about responsible social media use and not stay off the internet and like don't go near it type thing because at the end of the day social media is a wonderful tool that people can use to connect and to research and to network I wouldn't have met Yamna or you actually James if it wasn't for social media yeah but that's if you use it properly and the problem is we're being taught that it's this scary horrible thing that we just shouldn't go near and not how to use it properly. And again, this is just coming from my education. So it could be different for you, Yamna. But I think we need to actually reform how we're looking at education. We're, people are going to use it anyway. So we either teach them how to do it safely and to do it responsibly and not just don't do it at all because they'll find a way around it. It's the same with so many things. And, and it baffles me that we've got to this point where mostly we're teaching things like drug and alcohol use in that way because we know young people are going to engage in it so let's at least give them tools about how to do it safely but this isn't quite happening with social media yet again I don't know my PSHE started in you know in year seven 2014 so it could have completely changed by then by now but yeah that's my take on it yeah yeah thank you uh, you're dead right. And I think that we're all getting to grips with this. Like we we sort of, we, we you know, my son was sort of, you know, was, was squarely in this age where he sort of got a smartphone at about age 11, as, as many young people do. And, you know, there wasn't very widespread understanding about, you know, the, the impact that, that social media can have on young people's mental health and development. And now, you know, there are, the, the data are coming in and it's much stronger. And I do, you know, there are people who are speaking very strongly about this who are saying like, we, we will come to see this in future years. Like, you know, like the, the idea that we allowed young people to buy alcohol or drugs or cigarettes, say at the age of 10 or 11, is that we're putting something that's highly addictive and potentially highly toxic in their hands, that these things need to come with with strong guidance around how to use them. And even, you know, some of the screening apps that you use, like I, I use the thing with my son and the, 
you know, the way that you can sort of monitor the, the kids' use on the phones. But it's really complicated. There are all kinds of ways that kids find loopholes around them for parents, you know, who struggle with technology and so on. It's it's not easy to navigate that world. And I agree with you that there's a that there's a lot of there's a lot more that we need to do on, on the social media front. And I agree with the people who are sort of criticizing this point online. I agree that that you know that you, you can't put it down to schools, right? It's unfair to do that. And yet I sort I can't help but wonder. Like I'm not saying that that schools and teachers, you know, who, who are working so hard in difficult circumstances are, you know, inadvertently causing their, their students to self-harm. That would be a, a ridiculous thing to say. But the question remains, if the system, if the wider system allowed for, you, you use those three words, Yumna, care, empathy, and agency. And in particular, I think the agency one, for me, it, I, I just come back to like, like, I think that young people to be like, so self-determination theory says that there are three sort of components, aren't there, for somebody to feel like as like they're in control of their life and control of their learning. One of them is choice. One of them is competence, so it's autonomy. One of them is competency, that they can feel good at this thing. And the third one is sociality. And that agency piece is absolutely central. And as we spoke about earlier, like there is no self-directed learning that happens in schools, apart from like in the EPQ at, at A-level. It's all sort of done to kids. And I just wondered, like, is that having a pernicious effect on, on young people's sense of self and on their sense of like so, uh, that they are somebody who can act in the world under their own free will. And, you know, just as a final addendum on this, you know, this is a very small sample size, but I was a secondary school teacher and I was teaching young, some young people who were really, really struggling. They'd had big problems in their lives. They had like traumatic, you know, adverse experiences in their, in their backgrounds, but they were really, really struggling in school, like with, with issues around self-harm, mental health, one of them was all, almost like mute, like would hardly speak in, in school. And then I went to work at the Self-Managed Learning College and two of these students who had previously taught moved to SMLC around the same time. And I saw them flourish like in a period of weeks and months when they were given the space and the time in which to choose what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it, for how long, there was who they who they wanted to work with, whether they just wanted to do something on their own. Sometimes they did nothing. It's in terms of academic formal learning for a few weeks or months as they go through this process of of de-schooling. But they soon start to sort of develop hobbies and to naturally sort of take an interest in the world around them and so on. And I saw the the beneficial effects that that it had on them when they were given greater agency. And I, so I do sort of like remain with this question: like, is the lack of agency in school a contributory factor in this and it's a difficult question to ask but I think it's an important one because if it is then you know we need to do something about that so I'd be interested to hear what you think about that let's go Yumna and then Lottie yeah definitely I would say that a lot of young people feel like there's the lack of agency in their schooling system and that makes them have adverse experiences and I was you know when I was hearing Mary Helen speak about it it's like the lack of control. Like a lot of young people feel like they have, they don't, they don't really have a sense of purpose or direction in anything that they're doing because they're not sort of expected to think 
for themselves like we was told like i was always told in school like if you just listen if you just listen to us and you follow what we're saying then then you'll be fine but it's like when i'm released from your sort of from your sort of control that you're that you're putting students under what are you expecting us to do are we you you haven't sort of developed the skills in which we can you we can choose things for ourselves or we can have the agency to do certain things we haven't sort of developed that skills already so it's like what are you expecting me to do almost and it's interesting when you said yeah the students that I was teaching in it was that a traditional education setting before you moved to the self learning managed college yeah yeah it was a it was a large mainstream uh, state secondary school yeah so a lot of a lot of teachers a lot of teachers have experienced that well a lot of young people have gone through traumatic experiences and I know people in my cohort who they they left like totally left school and they were seen as you know the uh, kids who were mute they you know they suffered certain traumatic experiences in their life and they'd left school like uh, mainstream school totally but then a few months later they were flourishing in their own sort of environment because they sort of had the agency and they sort of had the space like you said they had they the space aspect is really important we don't sort of have the space in a in a traditional mainstream state school like the one that I go that I went to for example it's sort of stifling and I do feel like there's a lot of different factors that come into it like you said but definitely I feel like the lack of agency if we cultivate a sense of agency in our schools young people would definitely feel like they have the confidence to step outside of their comfort zone as well there's another sort of thing that links onto this which is about emotional self-regulation which is something that's an increasingly central to, to the work that I do with schools where we're teaching young people how to monitor and control their feelings that's physical feelings because often you know emotions are in your body as well as in your as in your mind and emotional feelings uh, and their behaviors and we talk about a number of ways in which because you know how like people often say like i'm in the zone you know like, like i'm in the zone i'm really working well today and also people can become zoned out, can't Ooh, they? They can yeah. become sort of like dysregulated. They can either be, you know, if you lose it, if you if you lose your temper, for example, and you sort of, or you go into that sort of fight and flight mode. And we know that often, you know, young people who've, you know, had several sort of adverse childhood experiences can often become hypervigilant, right? So they're like, any, somebody brushes past them and they're like, you know, they don't feel safe. And when you're, when you're in that state, your nervous system is in this state of high arousal, high alertness. And it's like you, you can't access your cognitive sort of processes. You can't learn effectively or engage with you know, people in a pro-social way because you just your nervous system is like, I'm not safe here. This is not okay. Back to the wall time, you know, eyes wide open, that sort of thing. Um, so we teach kids a number of things that you can, so you can help them to to notice the early warning signs, right? The first thing is, you know, if you notice that you're starting to get a bit tetchy, if you're if you're just a bit really impatient, if you feel really frustrated, if you're swearing, you know, more than normal, if you're sort of muttering under your breath, if your fists are clenched or your jaw is clenched, you know, and this goes for adults as well, then that might be, you know, a, a sign that you go, oh, okay, I'm starting to lose it a little bit here. I need to do something to reset my nervous system. I need to take some sort of action, right? 
And so you can you can notice the you can notice the early warning signs so that you can remain in that zone for longer. These things can also help you to return from the zone if you've lost it, if you've lost your if you've flipped your lid, as it were, or if you've sort of gone to the, the other end, the other way that people can become dysregulated is where they sort of become catatonic, they just sort of freeze, you know, the deer in the headlights thing. You know, if somebody's asked to, you know, when somebody says, oh, like, can somebody volunteer to speak in front of the class? And some kids just freeze and they put their head down, like, don't pick me, oh, don't yeah. pick me, that sort of thing, mm. you know. You sometimes see it when kids are cold called in class uh, without warning. And it's like, you, what do you think about this? And the kid just freezes. You see that quite often. Uh, and so it can, like, these self-regulation techniques can help young people to get back into the zone when they become dysregulated. And they can also, by practicing these things every day, you can expand your zone of tolerance, right? So it sort of helps you with regard to this zone in three different ways. And we often talk about three like manual override levers, you know, like so in the mind, the body, and the breath, you've got three sort of ways in which you can override your nervous system. And each of these things, I won't go into all these techniques now, but each of them, whatever you do, some sort of mind exercise, it could be some positive self-talk to over to, you know, to replace some like negative script that you always tell yourself, I'm rubbish at maths, I'm terrible at maths. You know, you might think, well, what if the opposite is true? So you start to think some positive self talk other things to just to put you into your body it could be stretches you know pushing against a wall whatever it is shaking your limbs out or breath techniques there's a whole range of breath techniques and and each of these these self-regulation techniques they sort of they put you in the moment right they, they bring you to the present moment and usually in the moment you're not about to be eaten by a lion you're not about to be publicly <laughs> humiliated you know you're basically usually fine in the moment and so teaching young people these self-regulation techniques really helps them to regulate but but again implicit in this is agency like because not the same that like, you can't just sort of say right with the whole like, we're going to do an assembly today and with 500 kids we're all going to do this breathing exercise because actually for some kids what they might need to do is to read a book or it might be that they need to tidy the tidy the resources tray or it might be that they just need some quiet time or it might be that you know they need to you know meditate or to listen to listen to a piece of music or whatever it might be and so because people are neurodiverse you have to have a flexible approach to emotional self-regulation where you sort of you check in at the start of a day at the start of a term at the start of a lesson say you're like how are you today you know like, are you in the zone where you where learning can happen or have you just sort of like has something just happened in the corridor where you got shoved by some big kids or so you've had some friendship issue or somebody stole something out of your bag or whatever it might be that's just jarred you you know like what can you do do some sort of a self-regulation technique to get you back into the place where you know where you can learn and, and be pro-social and flourish and so on but again agency is a key part of that because everybody's different you need to have flexibility and how you go about doing this and again i think that this is it comes back to this core point about the the importance for greater agency in schools not just in terms of learning but in terms of helping young people learn how to read their bodies and how to how to take action to make it so that they expand that zone of tolerance and and are able to be in that in that zone where they can learn effectively for more of the time so that was sort of a bit of a of a long point to make really rather than a question but um, i wonder whether either of you have, have, have any responses to that i think that you summed it up perfectly in terms of emotional self-regulation i said it before that emotion is like the glue that connects stories and experiences so yeah i would definitely agree with that but it also made me think you know you're talking about in the zone like a lot of young people especially you know you're know, waking up really early in the morning going to school it's sometimes it irritates you like 
it actually does because you're an, like even adults who experience that like you don't sometimes you don't feel in the zone to study or to learn or you know to actually process any of the information that you're that you're being taught so yeah and I would definitely say that I would want to sort of research or understand more about how to access higher higher levels of consciousness in terms of how does it affect young people's schooling or education but yeah I'm, I'm really I'm really being interested in that sort of topic of consciousness um of you know there's different levels of consciousness you know certain kids might experience higher levels of consciousness how does that impact sort of their schooling experience and what what information what learning they're being they're done that that they're sort of experiencing in school that's just what i wanted to say Mm, thank you um have you got any thoughts on that lottie yeah, I completely agree. You summed it up um, amazingly. And I think what you said was actually intelligent to every individual young person's needs because saying, I think you mentioned, you know, this being brought up in like an assembly or whatever. And I remember an assembly where they tried to get all 300 year 11s to do a meditation together. Now, I don't know about you, but a 316 year olds being told to do breathing exercises and say affirmations in front of each other is not going to go well. We all fell into giggles. But actually, you know, taking each individual case and giving them so many different techniques of how to cope, I think it's absolutely amazing. And if every school could do that, we'd be one step further to, you know, improving the mental health of loads of our young people. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And so just to clarify my own position on this, like, again, you know, I sympathize with people who would take offense at schools being put in the firing line to say, like, schools are causing mental ill health. But I firmly believe that we could do much more in schools to alleviate the problems that we're seeing, uh, which is a different point to make, but nevertheless, an important one, I think. So let's come on to fixes now. We've talked about lots of these challenges that we're that we're experiencing around pressure that's been that's been placed on young people to perform and you were talking about that as being societal pressure as well as you know within schools Yumna. what can we do and not just about that we talked about social mobility you were talking about you know the mental health of teachers Lottie what's your thoughts on sort of like next steps you know these are these are difficult deep-rooted multi-layered problems to address but what are your thoughts on how we can go about moving in the right direction if I'm going to be really crude about it, I would say we just need to scrap everything and start again. Um, and I've said that a lot before, but I know that's not easy for people to get on board with. So <laughs> to say stuff that and what we can do right now, I think it's really tricky. But I think, again, approaching things with compassion and not just going with your first gut instinct really, really quickly. And I think is really important to a lot of issues we've discussed today, to mental health in particular. I think we all need to just go a bit slower. I think capitalism is such a fast system that we're not having the time to stop and think about these um, young people. And I think, yeah, compassion is one of the main things. Um, And I also think we need to, as much as we can as schools, we're um, ignoring the government for a second, ignoring their constraints. We need to treat young people as actual human beings and not just economic values. And I understand that must be very, very difficult as well, higher level teaching staff, because they're literally being given funding per child. So, of course, they're going to treat young people as economic values. But um, again, this is the trick capitalism is playing on you. It's, it's saying that young people are literally only there to get a job, uphold the economy, support their family and then die at the end of it. 
And that's what not what I think life should be at all. But because what I think life should be maybe isn't providing this economic value, it's it's wrong apparently. But there we go. I think we need to start treating young people like actual people and teachers. Um, school systems just need to be about human interaction and not interaction between numbers and spreadsheets and charts. And then, again, to be a bit crude about it again, vote people into office who actually genuinely care about this and vote people into office. I think it's so important that anyone involved in education or higher, um, in a governmental level should have had experiences in education themselves, hopefully as a teacher. And if not, not have just gone to a private school because they have missed out on so much of what we've all experienced and are now writing laws and rules and examinations for the majority of students when they're not even there. So, yeah, to be really crude about it, please vote people into office who can actually do the job. <laughs> right. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I like so 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 the first point you made there is about being compassionate. I don't know if you saw did you, there was an article recently in the Times about a school up north called XP, which is in Doncaster, which looks amazing. It's a very small school. They only have fifty students per year group, and they don't have uniform. They do lots of project based learning. There is lots of agency. The kids are in the driving seat, and and their motto, the school motto, is above all compassion. And I think yes, that I did see that. Yeah, it's. A, a wonderful thing and you were talking about the need to go slower to sort of to take mm. a pause to stop and think and to, to treat young people as human beings and not economic values and I know that in a previous conversation we talked about or you you raised the issue of the marketization of education and I don't know if you've sort of got any any just a quick sort of thoughts on that I mean it's just a massive topic but it, it, that seems to be something that you've thought about a bit before yeah, no, definitely. I think I would say capitalism is the root of lots of problems of school. But I think definitely to kind of narrow it down, one of the big issues we're experiencing at the moment is marketization. I think, and for those, I will just quickly run over, for those who don't know what it is, it's the way schools are becoming businesses and treating each other like competition and students' grades and league tables are becoming big decision makers, not only on who comes to the school, but funding. And I think it's completely wrong because, again, you're using students like adverts when they're actually people and you're making students kind of have this fear of always being kind of appropriate to the public eye. And, and what I mean by that is, again, uniform to start with. Let's, you know, let's go there. As a female as well, I think skirt length was the, the hottest topic at my school and it probably was with all, to the point where a teacher quite literally ordered... Um, specific skirt measures of the school logo on it to check people had the right skirt length and not only is that one completely sexist and um, two a complete you know distraction from any sort of learning we're doing who is really caring about that and um, but three is teaching us that you know the only reason she was doing this and I remember her telling girls you know you're gonna let the school down you're letting your peers down you're letting teachers down but at the end of the day like I, do they really understand that by letting the school down she really means you're making us look less good and to be constantly kind of told that is is not right so that's a quick rundown of my opinion on the whole thing um, but I think if we can kind of pinpoint anything going wrong with schools that is one of the main thing I think we need to get away with these stupid adverts everywhere and schools need to stop being so league table focused and more focused on how they're learning and how the school experience is is for young people and students and not just you know the results they come out with in year 11 
Yeah, yeah, thank you. And that, that sort of takes us back in a way to that what we were talking about at the start of this conversation about why are things the way that they are? And I think that marketization and neoliberalism, the sort of the set of ideas that underpins that, go a long way to explaining why it is that things are the way that they are. Like you say, league tables and Yumna was talking earlier about, about competition, how schools set kids in competition against one another, competing for what's essentially a fixed number of, of grades and the expense of promoting collaboration, you know, like helping young people work well with other people rather than better than other people. Thank you. That's really helpful. And Yumna, so the broad question here is, and we're going to wrap this up soon because I've spectacularly failed in my attempts to make shorter episodes, but that's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a good good problem to have. Yumna, so let's just take this broad perspective now on like solutions. What do you think are going to be some first steps or what do you see as the goals that we need to be working towards here? Yeah, I would say, number one, there needs to be more, you know, young people need to feel like they're actually being represented in the decisions that are being made around schooling in the wider education system. And that's young people from all different backgrounds, not just young people who are traditionally seen to be, yeah, the most articulate young people or, you know, the young people who quote unquote have the most knowledge or whatever. So we need to be including young people from a from different backgrounds, you know, young people who are neurodiverse, young people who suffer with mental health illnesses, young people who are not within the traditional mainstream education system, young people who are outside of that. So we need to be including more young people, first of all. And secondly, having more effective collaboration between the different stakeholders within the education system. So I don't think creativity and imagination can be released in a community that is not really trusted by its leaders or you know, the people that are supposed to be representing them. So I would say that the effective collaboration between teachers, governors, parents, young people, head teachers, that all comes from, stems from trust. So if there's no trust, there's virtually no relationship there. And the third thing, like Lottie was saying, I definitely agree with what Lottie was saying of, you know, what she sort of recommends, but I, I definitely agree with that in terms of we need to actually have people in office who are going to represent us. Who are who who know exactly who know what they're talking about who know the major flaws of the schooling system and actually who are invested in the power of schools um in relation to the wider community and yeah like I said not everyone's gonna think that the whole schooling system needs to be scrapped but that's what that's what we as young people think yeah but I think it's it's sort of slowly pushing these alternative sort of solutions into the mainstream sort of um, schooling environment so that it becomes more socially acceptable rather than having alternatives of independent private schools popping up around the country who are, you know, who are saying that they're more democratic, who are saying that young people, you know, young people have more autonomy over their learning. But it's like that's only reserved for the privileged few who are able to afford to send their kids to those democratic sort of schools so i would say yeah definitely the politics angle of you know looking at who actually makes the decisions and who governs it and how can they include more people in the conversations that they're having to improve our schooling system yeah brilliant thank you and so just to recap that, so you're talking about the importance of representation of young people from all backgrounds, not just the most able. That's often the case, isn't it? That it's like the most able kids, middle-class kids get to be on the school council, say, and they get to be in the, you know, the video advertising the school on the website. You're talking about including young people from all backgrounds and to include involving them, not just in like in a consultate in a consultation way, but actually to to be at the at the table where decisions are made. Uh, linked to that, your second point was about the importance of trust between different 
stakeholder groups, as I understood it, promoting effective collaboration between lots of different stakeholders, mainstream and alternative educators, young people, parents and carers, which is so often important, other people as well as psychologists. And that's something that I've noticed recently is that there's lots of like intolerance among the, among, within the teaching profession. Sometimes when somebody speaks out about education who isn't a teacher, they're met with like, what do you know? You're not a teacher. There's lots of like, there is a lack of trust essentially to come back to the, to the language that you use in there. And we need to open up a much more expansive dialogue among people who are looking at this from multiple perspectives. And then it's interesting that you both made the point about the importance of having people in office who represent us whatever us means, we don't know if that means young people. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot as well, but that's way more of a topic than we, than we have time to go into now. But this is very much aligned with some of the thinking that I've been doing recently. And it doesn't look like there's particularly great ideas in terms of education on the opposition benches at the moment, any, you know, any much different to, to that that's happening on the, in the government benches. And so it's hard to see where that representation in terms of politics is going to come from currently. Although, as I say, you know, there, there are things that we can start talking about. Maybe we'll get, get you back on to talk about my crazy ideas for how we could change the way that politics works. Anyway, I want to come back to something that we almost mentioned earlier on, which is, I think, sort of helpful. I'm not quite sure how clearly it relates to everything that you've just been talking about now. But it was that thing between about P-mode and S-mode learning. Maybe I should have just mentioned this earlier, but I said I was going to mention it, and so I will in these final minutes. So this is something that comes from a guy called Ian Cunningham, who I interviewed in, the, in episodes two and four of the podcast. We had to split his episode over two episodes because I spoke to him for about five hours, unbelievably. And he talks about P-mode and S-mode learning, and it really helped me to understand the, the sort of how to get out of this conflict between like subject-based learning and, and that, that whole idea of the Copernican revolution, you know. And so he says that P-mode learning is where, you, where the person, right? So it's like, who's the person? What are the problems that they face? What are their processes? What are the patterns that they sort of currently have in, in the way that they learn and so on? And then you've got S-mode learning, which is like subjects and specialisms and so on, right? And he says that you need both, right? You need P-mode learning and you need S-mode learning, but you need to start with P and go to S. So you like you start with person and you're like, what is your interest here? So for example, let's talk to 12-year-old Yumna about like, who are you as a person? What do you see as important? What would you like your educational journey to include? Maybe if, if, if the school had 20% of the time dedicated to self-directed study or interdisciplinary stuff, say. And then you go to S mode, right? So it's like, okay, you want to understand the Arab Spring. Let's really delve deep. You know, here are some books that you might help find useful. And then we go and talk to specialists who understand, you know, what's going on in this part of the world, for example. And what schools do is that they start with S mode and they basically just stay with S mode, right? Like, and like you were saying earlier, like it doesn't really matter who the person is that they're teaching all 300 of you are going to get meditation, <laughs> whether or not this is going to work for you or not. It's just like this top-down S-mode stuff. And it's like, um, it's, this is not to negate the importance of S-mode learning. We still need subject specialists and, and traditional subject disciplines, but you start with the person and you allow them to, to, to co-construct an educational journey that will be meaningful for them. And it seems to me that that Copernican revolution it seems like at the moment we've got this system where one third of kids leave school feeling like failures, literally because they've been branded as that because they didn't get a grade four or higher. And we know that roughly one third don't meet that grade. So they feel like they leave school feeling like failures. 
And we could flip that around and place the, the well-being and the flourishing of every single child at the center of this process so that every young person without fail, without exception, can go through school learning how to become more confident, effective, pro-social, you know, emotionally self-regulating, agentic, all of those things, as well as knowledgeable about subject disciplines and what have you, and the, the science of how learning works. I, I don't see how we can't create a system where every single kid has that experience. And that seems to me to be the sort of the, the North Star that we need to be working towards. So anyway, that's my piece on, on the fixes. I would just like to give you both, I know we're going to wrap this up in the next couple of minutes, both um, chance to just have a final word to respond to that or, or to reflect on anything that we've spoken about today. So let's go Lottie and then Yumna. Yeah, no, I think that's an amazing way of looking at it and I would really like to read into that more. But if there's anything anyone could take away from this is to, I say this after every podcast we do, people must be sick of hearing it, but it's just to not sit on it, to actually go and do something with it. I think where I've come to university now, I wanted to take everything I've been doing and put it here as well. Um, I've straight away applied to be a course rep and to voice the opinions of everyone on my course um, try and make sure we have facilities for better mental health, et cetera. But um, I'd love everyone to be doing that. And I'd love teachers to be encouraging students who may be less likely to do things like that to you know, get ahead of the game. But yeah, don't sit on this. Use what we've said today and in all of these wonderful podcasts and campfire conversations to you know, push on. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And if you had to say one thing, Lottie, I'll maybe give you a minute to think about it. If there's one thing, let's say there are teachers listening, let's, let's target this at teachers or maybe young people. If you had to say one thing that you would recommend and I've asked the same question to Yumna. Yeah. I would say that the new kind of student is an individual that is being driven by their own intrinsic interest and their own curiosity and their own creativity. Like Every young person, we never sign the contract in which we sort of double guess what the teacher wants us to say or to do. So I would encourage every young person who's listening to follow their own interests and their curiosity and their own creativity and to do their own research into what it means to, you know, how do they analyze, you know, your own emotions as to how do you feel in the current schooling system? Why do you feel this way? And how can you actually be propelled into action? And those same questions go for teachers as well of how can you help and support young people in their journey as a teacher? Maybe you're in a mainstream schooling environment. Is it, do you feel stifled by the curriculum? How can you go outside of the curriculum? How can you, you know, positively build a relationship with every single young person, not just the young people, they, not just the students that you, you know, that you see that are outward or who can, you know, maybe engage with the learnings, you know, maybe who are more outwardly engaging more why not talk to the quieter students in your classroom who feel maybe they maybe they're you know maybe they're dealing with things at home or maybe they just you know they don't like what they're currently learning maybe that approach doesn't work for them engage with them cultivate a relationship with them and try and always step out of the curriculum and you know and I would say and I, I think I said it earlier on in the podcast episode but I think a lot of teachers going to teaching thinking that they will change the system because maybe they didn't like it but in fact, the system changes teachers. And I know for you, James, it did. And it, and it made you think more broadly and, and, and it made you step out of this and, you know, think about, okay, how can I go into the education system and, you know, how can I change it? But yeah, I would encourage teachers to do that. And yeah, and I, I want to I wanna say a massive thank you to you, James, for having me and Lottie on. And 
involving us in campfire conversations and i've been enjoying listening to all the different podcast episodes yeah so thank you so much amazing well thank you both for giving so generously of your time on a sunday morning i really appreciate it thank you again for for coming on it's been great no thank you for having us we've loved it yeah Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.